You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the X-Man Podcast. I am your host, Doc Coyle. Thank you for checking out the show. 150 episodes. Over the course of four years, and I'm going to say four months. (laughs) It's kind of crazy. It doesn't feel like it's been that long, but I suppose it is. And it's cool. I guess it's it's somewhat of, of an achievement in... And just the idea of, I guess, sticking with something and just being as consistent as I can. I There's so many other podcasts that in that same amount of time have probably done maybe twice as many episodes as I've done. So <laughs> maybe on the productivity front and consistency front, it's not the uh, the greatest achievement. But even with all that said, I'm proud of myself for sticking with it. And, you know, I actually talk about this a little later in my conversation, but... You know, there does, for me, there feels like some calling. And I know that sounds pretentious, <laughs> but based on the feedback I get from the listeners of the show, people get a lot out of the whole experience. And that's meaningful to me. And so I feel somewhat indebted, you know. So I want to thank everyone who's been listening to the show for all these years if you've been listening since the beginning if you're new either way i i appreciate it. anyone you know these things are not short in length they're an hour two hours in this case three hours so that's a real um investment of time and attention and that's there is nothing more valuable than time and attention especially in today's modern world so it just means the world to me and and I think more than likely, as long as people get something out of it, I'll I'll do it. I don't know if it, it'll always be this show or this theme, but I love the format. I love the medium. I'm connected to it. I, I think it's valuable, kind of societally and mentally and emotionally and collectively for us to understand each other better and learn more about our li- our lives and our personalities and our failings and our triumphs and the educational aspect of it. And that's why I listen to podcasts, other people's podcasts. And of course, there's just the entertainment, right? Just something to get your mind off maybe your day's problems. And I think that's all super important. 
So yeah, so it's 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 very it's very exciting, and you know I'm just I'm just really really happy. So I went on my way to get a great guest, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But before we go, I just wanted to say, or before we get into the next segment, I just wanted to say things are going really well right now. I'm I'm in a great state of mind. In the ten days, kind of after Bad Wolves with our singer, it was really touch and go. From a, it was emotionally, it was like a shocker. I think the whole process and and change is hard. And I was like up and down. I was like I had this manic thing of one day it's like I'm gonna climb the Empire State Building and run through a wall, and the next day. I'm like, we're gonna fail. It's never gonna happen. And the anxiety was was sky high, and and you know, and and the way I kind of worked through that, and I think as a band we we worked through that was to realize that everything doesn't have to be a battle. You know, that just just because someone tries to start a fight with you doesn't mean you have to engage, and that the the way towards peace is sometimes to is through non-engagement, you know, uh, and a lot of times the provocateur, and this isn't any case, it's just like, this would be some guy trying to start a fight, fight with you at, at, at a bar, that you really are lowering yourself to their level if you give them what they want, which is a conflict, which is basically to make them, to make you as miserable as they are, right? Get out, get down in the dirt and r- r- uh, run around. And then everyone's dirty. And when you can kind of, I kind of call it like the matador, right? You just let let the bull go through the red sheet. And, you know, there's just so much more peace there. And so what we've done is just focus on what we're doing, which is looking for a new singer. We got a brand new rehearsal space that's awesome. So we have a great energy there. We've been working on more new songs. And so when you take your energy and just put it into positive stuff and focus on each other and being communicative and being, uh, you know, listening to each other and kind of in a lot of times what, what can happen, I think in, in organizations is let's say there's a, you know, a, a person people don't really get along with and then people focus their energy on that and that person's not around, then they almost glossed over the issues they have with each other because they were all focused on someone else. And so it's really important not to use that other problem as an excuse, you know, or like that kind of collective, like, hey, we're going to get on this team and all. It's like sometimes it, it gloms over these other issues you might have. So you have to be ready for that, that other things might surface that when you don't have something else to focus on now, oh, I'm going to nitpick this person or I'm now this I didn't realize this person actually did this thing that pissed me off. And so you have to really kind of zoom out from that. But it's just a really exciting time. And if you guys could hear some of the, uh, you know, pr- perspective vocalists we have, it's uh, it's really cool. And it's, and it's really encouraging. And I think this whole time period, this next six months, year, it's, it's going to be a time for everyone to start to reset, start fresh. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. And there's, they just opened restaurants out here, outdoors. Everyone's in a better mood. Feels like they're, you know, the Super Bowl just happened. You know, everyone seemed happy about that. There's just, 
It feels like, and I know things are, there's a lot of darkness out there right now, but it feels like things, there is hope. There is a, a brighter horizon down the road, and I'm I'm very excited for that. So, with all that said, just 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 wanted to put out the uh, the positive energy, and uh, and let and communicate with all that with all of you. And so hopefully that you know brightens your day a little bit and let you know you know and just that's all it is. Just a circle. We have to keep pushing that. If you're feeling good, share it with other people, and I think it uh, it gets contagious. At least I I, I hope so. So anyway, with all with that all said, here's a word from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, my name's Scott Bowling. I have a YouTube show called Good Company with Bowling. What's up, this is Clint Lowry from Seven Dust. Hey, what's up, this is Sonny Mayo. Hey, Ricky Rackman. And you're watching Good Company with Scott Bowling. I've interviewed bands like Limp Bizkit, Fozzie, Seven Dust, Korn. I've had Chris Farley's brother, Tom Farley, on the show. My show is kind of like a modern day Wayne's World. Oh. If you love a good interview, a good rock interview, or just any kind of interview, please, if you get a chance, check out my show, Good Company, with both. Yeah, Scott Bowling. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you've you've heard Scott's advertisement, advertisement on the program before, and it's a great show. You should go over to YouTube, check it out. Just put in there in the search menu, "Good Company," Scott Bowling with two T's. He just had a very interesting show with Ming Cheng, which is Chi from Deftones' brother. I haven't gotten a chance to check it out, but it looks really cool. I think that's just. Very interesting. And he had Corey Taylor on not that that long ago. And the thing I like about his show is there's definitely an effort with production value and making feel like you're seeing something that is professional. So go over there, check him out, leave a comment that Doc Coyle and the X-Men sent you. All right. We have another sponsor, a band like we usually do. This band is called Fleischkrieg. And they are L.A. based by way of Seattle. And we're going to play a track entitled Doros, which is short for Dancing on Rays of Sunlight. Check it out. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Did you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends, Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony, also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, SoundTalentMedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. 
Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!
So that was Fleischkrieg with their track Doros, which is going to be coming from their debut album forthcoming called Herzblood. Yes, very, very German. And uh, the track you can hear, it's like Little Romstein, Little Fear Factory. I thought it was really cool. You know, you don't get too many industrial bands these days, so it's 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 nice to hear. And the band is comprised of two people, a uh, film director and video director, a guy named Richard Craner, who I guess he did a movie called Starleaf as the vocalist, and the guitar player is Thomas Crawford of Seraphim. And if you remember, when I interviewed a couple listeners of the show, Thomas was one of the guys. So very nice fella, very cool track. And... So they actually launched a Indiegogo campaign where they're just trying to raise some money to finish the album production-wise, press some vinyl, make some t-shirts. And if you want to support that, go over to their website, uh, fleischkrieg.com, and that's F-L-E-I-S-C-H-K-R-I-E-G. And the band name, if you're looking for it anywhere on streaming or anything, it's all one word. And they're also doing a virtual music tour in March called Welcome to the New Apocalypse. Five shows in live stream shows in five different time zones, three US, two Euro- European based, and there's also two other bands playing Cryptomesia and Nuda and some other local acts from each region. So I think that's a really cool idea. Head over to their website, check them out, support the band, support their Indiegogo. And if you'd like to hear your band featured on the X-Men podcast, shoot me an email at the X-Men podcast at gmail.com. That's EX or just, you know, drop me a message in my, you know, in the DMs and one of my social media accounts. I'm at Doc Hoyle everywhere. Alrighty. Thanks again to, to Fleischkrieg for supporting the show. And uh, anyway, on to our guest this week. This is, like I said, it's 150th show and I... The reason why I didn't have a show last week was I was trying to make sure that we got a special guest. You know, at my 50th show, I had Tosin Abasi, which I thought was very special. On my 100th show, I had Jamie Jasta, which I thought was special. And, you know, I was trying to ask around for a few people that I felt would meet this monumental occasion. And Ryan Martini, the bass player of Mudvayne, I guess they're they're not an active band, so I could say former player, <laughs> bass player of, of, of Mudvayne. But I felt like he was someone who we just hadn't heard from in a while. He's he's not out on social media, and he's really I think an iconic figure from the era of music that Mudvayne came out in. He's one of the real superstars of of the instrument, and. Someone that, you know, from my interactions with him over the years, I think is just a true artist and someone with a lot of integrity and are just a very interesting person. So I just couldn't be more excited to have him as my 150th, well, guest for my 150th episode. It's not exactly 150 guests, but <laughs> you know what I mean. But but yeah, listen, I, I this is a long interview. We we, we talk for, for, for quite a long time and... So I, I think the, the introduction it almost doesn't need to happen because we, we just get into pretty much everything here. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So please check out my conversation with the incredible Ryan Martini. Well, listen, Ryan Martini, welcome to the X-Man podcast. This is 
so exciting for me. You're the 150th guest. This is a big deal. And you're my you're my favorite kind of guest uh, because you're someone from what I know, I can't I found a Facebook page, but it looks it looks kind of inactive. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know. Yeah. So and and you can't add friend. I think you have to add the friend or something. So this is like you're one of the people that's not overexposed. People are looking for you. And somehow I feel like I found you. You're you're this is this is the end of the the detective novel. It's like, yes. <laughs> we finally found him, but I listen, I, I just can't thank you enough for taking your time to to be on the show. You're 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 someone who I, you know, like I so said, we don't know each other super well, but the interactions we have had, you have a very kind of thoughtful and considerate quasi like spiritual energy i don't know i feel like you're you're functioning on another plane than than some of us which is no but it's rare for the world we come from of heavy metal which with all the tough guy energy and bombastic kind of flair and egos and and, and all that but um but anyway how, how are you doing um well uh that's very kind of you thank you so much for having me uh, it's a privilege to be able to uh, chat with you and get to know you a little better through this and maybe talk about, I want to return to what we were, you know, uh, touched upon earlier before uh, we started, which is, you know, kind of your blossoming into this kind of uh, creative aspect of your life too, uh, because, you know, it sounds like this uh, cast is about kind of talking to the, the artists uh, about their past experience and their creativity and kind of what they've been doing in all this time. And uh, obviously this is something that you've been up to. Um, and because I don't, I do sit almost everything out. Um, I don't make comments. I don't hang uh, in chat rooms. I just really uh, am reluctant to, 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 to get into that whole area of living. Uh, different types, just different strokes for different folks, uh, I would say on that one. But uh, yeah, so I'm thankful for the opportunity uh, because I don't really interact with uh, uh, members of bands. And um, unless you're in my direct circle of doing stuff, I pretty much kind of stick to my own little uh, own little bubble, um, probably to my own detriment. Uh, but, but most of the time, I, I try to keep a smile on my face, man. But uh so how are you? Uh, well, well so we, we need more smiles in heavy metal. So I'm, I'll be the first. <laughs> okay. It's, in, it's, it's important, this uh, no smiling thing. I, I have this funny story I was telling about the first time I ever saw uh, Seven Dust and, and then I saw In Flames within a small period of time. And I was yeah. like, like, man, they're out there smiling. I want to smile. <laughs> play some rock riffs where I could smile instead of being staring at my fretboard and breaking my hand trying to play some crazy wannabe oppressor suffocation riff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I, I kind of have a thing about old metal dudes. I'm like, why are you still mad? Why are you so mad? Really? You're like, you got this far along. You're still that pissed off about life. Um, you can't smile about something, man. I know you got a house. I know you got like people who love you. So obviously your life is like rich <laughs> in that sense. So, uh, uh, the whole heavy metal guys that, uh, uh, old heavy metal dudes that have made it and are still pissed. I'm like, what's, 
what's wrong with this picture, man? You should be thrilled with where you're at in life, you know? Uh, so, but recently I felt a little more uh, uh, metal myself uh, in my middle age. Uh, just stuff's been crazy. So, uh, you know, the cause of this whole break and artists, you know, not being able to uh, uh, fulfill some of the same um, needs or wants of their fan base or their own needs and wants, desires. And, you know, everybody's life has kind of been turned upside down. Um, and in particular, you know, those who are touring folks. Uh, so it's a, it's a brave new world, man. Well, there were three words you mentioned in our email correspondence, music, love, and life, which is, I think, some fundamentals that anyone listening to this podcast or cares about the, the world we come from, those are obviously life. If you're not, if you're not alive, then, I, then you're not, nothing, nothing's happening. Uh, love is what brings us together. And, and music, that's, uh, I think, the, the passion element. And some, someone like you, uh, I think you're such a unique figure in, in many respects, because I, I think when you look at certain individuals, especially against the context, and Mudvayne came out of the quote unquote new metal era. And I was trying to think about it. I was like, I was like, is Ryan the most overqualified individual that came up in the new the new metal ranks from a just musicianship standpoint? Because I listen to stuff with uh, your new band, Soften the Glare, and it's so next level. It's so musician-y, but in a sense of it actually has a lot of musicality and um, craft and, and it doesn't sound like just some technical musicians playing things so that they can hear it. It actually feels uh, uh, atmospheric and it has vibe and it has groove and it has hooks. And there's just not, there's only a handful of people in, the, I think, in the world we come from that could even possibly even try to do anything like that so i don't know maybe that was just a, that, there's not even a question there it's just me kind of i guess you know f as we call in my show fluffing the balls a, a, a little bit <laughs> you're a really unique person um and i i would think some of it has to do with where you're from you're from pure illinois correct uh born in springfield actually oh springfield excuse me i'm sorry Illinois, but uh uh no close close uh you're not uh, wrong with the association there the band came out of uh, uh peoria um so that's all those places are you know it's, they're just midwest uh small town midwest america you still live there no uh-uh i'm sorry my dog is dry he has his collar and it's in the little clacking against yes thank you dear oh my <laughs> goodness um uh, no uh i only lived there um i uh, like i said i was um born and, and raised in the springfield area and then um you know uh, moved around a little bit in illinois but ended up in peoria for the band and uh uh plays in peoria which i guess we did uh play in peoria uh quite a bit before everything kind of started to take off yeah uh there was something going on, it seemed, in the Midwest around that time. You had Slipknot, you had Mushroom Head, uh, American Head Charge was from Minneapolis. There seemed to be some kind of despair that was reflected through the music, kind of working class, um, you know, reflections of, 
I think in, in many ways, we've kind of seen that in the last few years and kind of almost not to make it political, but in the Trump era, like you think about these kind of forgotten generation to a certain degree. And I think maybe you see some of the under, underpinnings of that in the late 90s, early 2000s, where, I mean, it was just a lot of dark, emotional music coming from those areas. I mean, can you speak to that at all? I mean, is that something you felt was going on or that you saw around you in your environment? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think that that, that to really, you know, let's unpack all that. Mm, is this uh, a, no, it is. It's psychology. You, you know, there's a lot going on there in that question. You know, uh, and an anthropologist would be better suited to really get into <laughs> all that uh, with you. Uh, um, but I guess uh, one of the things that I think you see in some of these places is a change in in the industry there and then that how, how that affects the the town and being from small town America one of the things that um, I grew up seeing are these large factories mm. and uh, my father worked in them um, you know my friends parents worked there um, and so when things change um, whether that be the demand shifts or or uh, the place of, of build goes elsewhere um, you have these structures that were built, um, whether that be the actual physical structure or the, uh, the structure of the, the social fabric of that town is somewhat built around some of these larger workplaces like these large factories. And so uh, one of the things that I absolutely directly saw is the um, after effect of these factories come, come and go. And then what now has uh, kind of... You see a big hole in the heart of a city um, when there's a big hulking structure that used to, you know, uh, employ five, 10, 20,000 people. And now it's just derelict. And, and it's kind of a, a, you know, a remnant of past good. And, and, and a, a, but is it a reminder of things, what we shouldn't do? Um, it raises some questions, you, you know, uh, about how people really want to spend their time you know they you end up with a say in a small town america factory comes and goes but it's there long enough where several generations now the people who live, work there live and work there they go okay we'll just get you a job you know uh little julie or little timmy you're going to get a job at the factory and and that's how it's going to go and so that carries on for a couple generations, two or three generations. And then when it leaves, everything kind of really uh, changes for that, for that town. And you see that really over and over uh, um, in some of these small Midwestern areas. So once again, not, uh, you know, not to bring politic into it at all. It, it, it is not, this is a political, this thing that has happened in these small towns um, maybe uh, someone else wiser than I would say that's not the case. It's all political. Um, however, um, my bringing it up is just my experience of it and seeing it and, and working it. And, uh, you know, my father was a factory worker and retired from uh, a working factory uh, job. And so I saw what that did to his, his hands. I worked at the same place. I worked at Mitsubishi Motors. Uh, maybe folks do uh, or don't know this about me, but I worked as a supplemental worker for Mitsubishi Motors in uh, uh, Bloomington Normal, Illinois. 
And as a supplemental, I got to kind of float around the plant wherever you, wherever you were needed. So I worked in paint shop and body. I worked in, you know, chassis uh, um, and uh, lots of eyes that were vacant uh, day to day seeing it. And then one day I, go ahead. What do you you mean? You saw eyes that were vacant? Vacant, you know, nobody's home. They're just doing their job, you know, and, um, and that's not to belittle anyone or speak poorly, uh, um, but to say more, more to the point is the vacancy, I think means they were retracted inside of themselves. Well, Uh, what's kind of interesting about that point you make is that it's almost damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? If the job isn't there, the town kind of crumbles on in itself. And when the jobs are there, the monotony of the work kind of has its own extraction from the soul as well. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting yeah. the way you kind of put it. Yeah, I, I've, um, uh, I worked chassis one day, which is all overhead and all the tools were, you know, they wrap out air tools. And so you build several hundred cars and shift um, with them uh, overhead and with all the tools wrapping out and you go home. And one day I went home and couldn't uncurl my hands without wow. using the other. And I never went back. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I made my choice then. And it sucked because I was a really young guy making pretty good uh, uh, money for, and I, I think that, you know, I got very, very lucky to, to be placed in a job like that um, and have the opportunity to, you know, learn a whole bunch and, uh, you know, and not have to scrape. You know, I had other people who were just, you know, doing delivery drivers and, and make jobs and, and wishing they were making more money doing so. And here I was able to do it. But then it's hard work. It's hard work. And I, I I'm sad for the people who get stuck there and then don't see any other way for themselves. And artists, you know, musicians who do go home and can't open their hands, but they've got mouths to feed and they have, then they make, you know, the choice to take care of their families instead of become artists. You know, people make these forks in the road with their life. And uh, I, I took the, that fork, you know, that led me down, you know, uh, music, but, um, I certainly remember that uh, somewhat fondly in the, the, the way that I, I did get to learn and I, I was uh, given opportunity that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certainly thankful, but, but uh, being able to have transitioned, you know, my career into music, which was always uh, a part of my life and what I wanted to do was not something that everybody gets to. So back to the towns, you know, what happens to the, to the mindset, the, the people withdrawing inside of themselves because it's just a bunch of have to instead of this is the job I love to do. Yeah. You know, that's hard. And so many people end up there and I've, I've ended up there, you know, and post mud bane stuff at putting, putting pieces together, um, you know, and, and manual labor, get it done. Um, so you kind of have to come meet the situation that you're in, you know, head on. Um, so many folks have to just choose to, to do that for, for their well-being. So I'm fortunate to have been able to take that other fork and end up being able to support myself making music, man. Let's talk about that fork. Uh, 
I'm really interested in the time before Mudvayne and kind of what helped form you as a musician. I know Mudvayne had a record out before you were in the band. And obviously by the time LD50 came out, your style was so defined. And, and in a sense, this like I'm sure you've heard this term, but you essentially were playing lead bass in the band where almost where Greg Moore held it down in a very just solid his riffs were just just on top of it very chunky very full and in a sense gave you room to explore as a bass player and kind of fill out different things that were going on was that something you had developed before you were in Mudvayne or was it something that you kind of cultivated when you were kind of working on that first album oh I would certainly say that uh uh it was cultivated that at that point I think that's a, a very a great adjective, you know, uh, uh, almost a verb, if you will, you know, uh, to, to utilize the verb. I'm, I'm going verb. <laughs> I'm going verb. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cultivated that. Um, uh, speaking across record. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, obviously I had been trying to put some new things together. I still am, you know, that's part of my point of being uh, 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 playing at the bass, if you will, you know, as I'm trying to figure some new things out with it, trying to find some new way to approach it. I was never going to be satisfied with being, you know, a, a, a smoking player with all, all the licks. Uh, uh, that I'll leave that to people who really want to play things over and 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 over again. You know, um, uh, I've, I've been trying to always figure some little bit out that I thought other people might find useful, you know, in the context. So to try to open it up a little bit. And so the thing that I was doing maybe prior to getting together with uh, the Mudbank guys was starting to add the percussion element um, with getting the string to uh, uh, that attack, the, the claw um, had, had started to be uh, born um prior to but as far as the all the writing and uh you know the interrelationships between the parts and pieces you know that was all that's all my thing you know that's all how we related to each other you know be, before during and after you, you know each part of the process so um, i would certainly give credit to the overall and being a participant inside of it um, was is much more about what we were than any about I think what any one individual were brought into it. To me, it always felt like more of a collaborative effort to to get this thing to to really uh, to, to to come into existence. Yeah, I mean, you guys were a real band, and it's to me no surprised that you worked with uh dave fortman right it was the yeah, yeah 40 and there was that kind of maybe one removed relation to a band like tool and even tool when i think about tool i think about bands like led zeppelin and you know just these four pieces where or raging machine is another one where mm -hmm. each member is really indispensable Right. And, and very few bands are actually like that. So many bands are, here's the guy and here's maybe the second guy and the third person or what have you. And there's a kind of defined hierarchy. And I think 
bands like Mudvayne are difficult to, to maintain because sometimes, and especially like me being having been doing metal for so long and, and had the fortune to be in a, a few several different types of band dynamics where I see the way modern music is written and the bass for a lot of bands is an afterthought, right? It's just there for the sub frequency or it's just there to fill out a guitar part. It's, it's really just a sonic piece of, of the guitar. And listen, some of that is chicken and the egg, right? Like to some degree, there aren't musicians maybe dedicating time to the instrument and then allowing it to shape the music and then maybe with that gap, then you have producers and songwriters just like, well, I'm just trying to get the song done. I don't have time here to, to John Paul Jones is the motherfucker, you know? <laughs> uh, so it is So it is probably one thing feeds the, feeds the other. Um, but no, but like, you know, I, I was listening back through the records and started LD50 and, and what's kind of striking about it, especially with perspective of 20 years later, it's just how fucking weird the record is. <laughs> like for you know to be, you guys first came out the gate pretty, you know, making a lot of noise, doing some big tours, selling a lot of records, and mm-hmm. and clearly the you know the, the image made an impact. But musically, there was just a lot happening. There was a lot of density. There was a lot of dynamics. There was a lot of artistry, which. I, I, you know, I can't imagine, you know, working with a label like Epic, almost, they must have get, given you guys a pretty long leash to kind of do your thing. Is that, is that uh, correct? I would assume. That, yes, that, that is a very uh, astute observation. Um, they kind of didn't know what to do with, uh, with us, I don't think. And we didn't know what to do with ourselves, really. Um we did and we didn't. Uh, it was always about explore, exploring, um, even though uh, there was a bunch of planning prior to, uh, we have a very uh, a diverse group of guys inside of Mudvayne. Um, and uh, to say that, that there are uh, very different personalities is, is to really understate it. <laughs> and, and I can imagine. Uh, and that's not to disparage anyone yeah. uh, at all. Uh, I think that's a good thing, by the way. I think diversity of of spirit, diversity of of personality, like like, hey, this guy likes country, and this guy is that is at a rave. You know, I think that's what I think the most interesting bands. It's like the Deftones, right? It's like Steph Carpenter's over there listening to Meshuggah, and Chino's over there listening to The Cure, and then you put that together, and then you get the Deftones. You know, and and it's the the interesting shit is in the tension, not in the things where they agree upon, my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's that uh, uh, push and the pull, uh, certainly uh, the compression, expansion, all, all these things. Um, but I always thought it was a, a really cool uh, uh, vehicle to bring to life these, these new things, these new creations uh, that we chip away and reveal what was there um, between us. And, and so... Uh, yeah, certainly the the Mudvayne camp is, is a, a group of very uh, different people with different sets of skills. Yeah, and and I think that bears out in, in some of the songs that uh, the skillfulness of uh, of the writing 
um, not to toot my own horn, but speaking of my bandmates um, and what their contribution, you know, to that uh, it was and is, you know, uh, how that still lives inside of the songs, what they were, what they were thinking, I can't tell you. Um, what I was thinking, uh, I can't tell you. Um, it's always been about trying to explore that space uh, for sure. But certainly, yeah, they aren't angry songs. You try to make them as awesome, angry as you can. And, and uh, the happy, weird songs, you make them as weirdly happy as you can. You try to connect to those, that space. And, right. and, happy, no pun intended. <laughs> right, right. And happy, <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, but yeah, man, uh, it was always an experiment. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I think always fragile uh, in, in that. Um, and that, I think that fragility and that honesty and um, of what it is, is still lives in those records. Um, at least I think it does. I don't really listen to him much. Uh, well, but No, but hold on. As someone, so I hadn't listened to you guys in, in quite some time. And, and I don't think I really invested as much time as I probably should have at the time for whatever reason. Maybe I was just into other things or I was just paying attention to something else, but going back and listening through the catalog, it, the progression evolution and steadfastness of the band's development is actually pretty, very stark. If you listen to it from record to record to record. Um, and there is a, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised how consistent, the band was from record to record because sometimes you think about a band you're like oh man their hit songs were on that album or that was but you guys i'm like no no they kind of had hits on every record which is rare i think or standout tracks that so if you go in your spotify the top 10 there's songs from every record which is rare there's a lot of that's very cool one or two albums so i think that that's a reflection of the consistency but before we even get into the other, other records, I think, and I'm sure it's, it's something like a lot of people have to deal with that have that one song that kind of speaks to being a classic or having something that, that sticks with people. And I guess for you guys, even though it's not technically your biggest song, it's kind of your most iconic song, which is Dig, because it was the first video where people oh. see you. Uh, it won the, the video award. And but what really strikes me about the, the song and its success is how, how counterintuitive that uh, the idea that a song like that can be a quote unquote hit because there's no singing in it. There's, I mean, I guess there's, a, is it a chorus? Is it, a, is it really a refrain, right? Like, I don't really know what to put on it. And I'm, <laughs> but to this day, it kind of blows me away because I don't think we've seen anything since where a song that didn't have a, that wasn't clean song or melody driven was a quote unquote hit. Can you, can you think of, I mean, maybe like on a metal level, right? Like a band like Lamb of God have a song like Redneck, right? But even that has some pitch to it actually in the, in the chorus. He's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit gone, but it's, did you guys have any idea that it would do what it would do? can't imagine you would have i don't know but then again i don't think so uh you know i think we, somebody on you though right we i mean i think we bet on ourselves yeah you know, we, we bet on us uh by staying together and sticking it out and um and and 
I know the other guys will, will remember and tell you that uh, going back to the small town America band, we rolled up into some of these bars and small little places uh, and uh, we were mud vein then and that didn't quite play there. <laughs> it might have played in Peoria where we were, where the band was uh, beginning to get, gain its own fan base. But as soon as we got outside of uh, our, our little t- home turf there and started playing the, the, the bars uh, of the States, um, the reception was uh, chilly at times. But was, you think that was because of the music or that was because of the visuals or both? Uh, visuals. <laughs> I think the only reason we got over is because it was best. Uh, um, so, but this is actually kind of, I think, fundamental though. Did you get, in terms of getting major label attention and, you know, it was a, a feeding frenzy to a certain degree in terms of certain types of bands were being signed then in terms of new metal, radio rock, whatever we want to call it. And there was an idea of, everyone trying to find the quote unquote next slipknot, right? That was the, and, and you guys were, even though it was only a, your record came out a year after. So it was, it was probably happening at the same time. It wasn't probably reactive. It was probably, you know, it was, it was stewed in the same soup more or less. Right. Um, do you feel the attention at least from Epic and was it more music based or was it like, these guys are just, it's a crazy clown show and this is, we could put this on lunch pails or you think it was a marketing thing or do you think, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, uh, know? (laughs) You know, it's a big label and we weren't uh, uh, the biggest thing on that label by any means. So um, when you look back and look at the roster that was part of Epic at that point, we were a, a baby band. And so, I, we didn't have a ton of interaction with, with the higher ups per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they were curious to see what we would do um, and didn't really know what to do with this. And our band ethos carried into, into it, whether we were prepared or had any business acumen, which we did not <laughs> at the time. Um, we knew we didn't want to be pushed around. Yeah. In, the, in any in, in an artistic way um and that was a part of our bond i think and still probably is uh, that that the music we wanted to make is the music everyone heard and um and when people tried to try to uh, muscle in on that or insert themselves into the situation it it usually didn't turn out well for for everyone involved so um you know we we knew what we were about in that sense. Um, and that was a part of our ethos and, and we carried that into our, uh, uh, into our business dealings and such with them. So I don't think they, they really knew exactly what to do with this, but I, I hope we had fans there. I hope that, you know, some of the, we knew, we knew the people from the street team, um, the people who were, had feet on the ground who were postering places that used to be a thing, by the way, everybody. Oh yeah. You know, labels used to have, people who volunteered and who were really super into bands and who uh, would go out and, and plaster a, a, a town, you know, before a band had come and, and, or before their album re- would release. And, um, a big know, deal, man. what's that? That was a big deal. I, I had uh, a right. Rogue on the show who did street team, uh, 
for Roadrunner and worked for Streetwise and and you, yep. like you guys or System of a Down. I remember had so much stuff happening in the streets, Slipknot themselves. Like, do you remember the, the big story with them pre- printing their own uh, sampler tapes and things, things like that? It was so obviously it's right on that cusp between the internet becoming like a thing that existed and a thing that dominated. So the physical yeah. in-person stuff was still just uh, indis- indispensable. Yeah. 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 It's interesting, you know, that we were a part of that whole time period. I don't know that um, we, yeah, we were really uh, uh, kind of, I don't know. I always, I always felt like we, kept a little to ourselves and and tried to just maintain momentum there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes that um people may or may not know about with uh, uh typical band stuff lawsuit and uh, you know ex people in our sphere uh that stuff was definitely burdensome um for for many years uh both uh emotionally um and financially um, you know, we were definitely shouldering a responsibility that we, that many bands have seen, um, and, and we found ourselves in, in a far too probably typical situation defending ourselves and such. So, uh, that, that, that was a little bit of a, a bummer <laughs> to say the least, uh, uh, to spend, you know, seven years in a lawsuit is, is never, never all that great. Not where you want to find yourself, um, especially since, you know, feel like you're the one who uh, made that happen. So, yeah. Uh, so speaking of this is going back a little bit to the release of LD 50. So I was, I remember, and this is funny, this is the second time this, this story has come up on, on the show because I had, um, see the, the, the brain, the brain is, is, is not working from, a. From Hell Yeah and, and Nothing Face, um, guitar player. Oh, Tom Maxwell. Um, there you go. See? Not cool. Screwing up. Again, I love Tom. But anyway, <laughs> so you guys were on tour the yeah. week that the album came out, and it was you guys, Nothing Face, and Amen, and you okay. got Virtual Nightclub. And I remember this week specifically because you guys had a really good first week sales for a brand new band. It was like holy shit, this band is serious. And I was really surprised because you guys are brand new. And at the show, you were headlining over Nothing Face. Mm. And I was a little pissed off. So I was like, big Nothing Face. So I was like, who are these guys? They think they're, they're going to show up. But you know what it kind of reminded me of? Is actually what happened to Bad Wolves. Because Bad Wolves came out and then this had this big single blow up. And we literally, when our album was coming out, we were already headlining and selling hundreds of tickets and it, uh, and I'm sure there was someone else that saw us and goes, "How the hell are those guys?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, already. But it's but it's fascinating to see that experience from two angles, right? From being a yeah. kid in the crowd and then also experiencing it. So, what was that like for you? Did it almost feel like you guys were skipping the line, or that it was was it intense to kind of feel, even though it was in the grand scheme? modest success but as far as heavy bands to be headlining clubs with some established bands out the gate it's it is kind of a a validation to some degree 
Yeah, I think that that's always been a bit of a hairy situation for bands. You know, it always is. Uh, um, it's kind of like relationships. There's a power struggle there in some way, shape, or form, whether they want to be or not. There just is. Um, and opening bands and headlining and the whole jockeying for position kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, what I can say to that quickly is that um, I'm proud to open for bands that have fans. I'm, I'm thrilled to be there in front of uh, the audience. And if you make me open for you, know that I'm coming. For you. <laughs> that I'm there. He's I'm making, there to kick your ass. He's making a very serious face, by the way. That was not a joke. No, no, I'm not joking, actually. I'm there to do my job the best that I possibly can. And if you make me open for you, I'm, I'm there to actually do it better than you. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but no, it, while that's true, um, we're, we've always been, you know, uh, humbled by the opportunity to play for really awesome bands. And it's always going to flip. It's always going to flip. And so I've never felt bad about going, okay, well, you're, you're on the ups and we're, all, we're up. You're coming up. Cool. You can open. Um, we did it too. And, uh, and it's going to flip uh, time and time again for bands. You know, We'll, we'll never be uh, a headliner over uh, bands that sell 5 million records you know, per record. That's not how it works in the industry. So um, uh I accept our, our little spot in the universe. So I have a question. So John Berklin, drummer of Bad Wolves, Devil oh. Driver, is yeah. a massive Mudvayne fan. So I, I, I approached him and said, hey, do you have any questions? Okay, because, you know, he's going to give me the super fan question that maybe I glossed over. So I'm going to go to a, a John Berklin question. And yeah. <laughs> we can, we yeah. can show some love. He says, quote, <laughs> oh, no. can you describe the pressure of writing your second album, The End of All Things to Come, coming from a massive debut? The, the old sophomore slump question. Was that a concern? Let me try to think of where we were at um, together. Uh, uh, I think. Okay. Can I, can, I, can I do a little projecting beforehand? Please, please, go ahead. Uh, well, well, I noticed going through the records, you guys basically did an album every other year. And I know for a fact you toured nonstop. So it might be actually such a fucking blur. <laughs> right? I mean, is that, am I wrong or right? Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, life is a blur, but um, I, I was just trying to place this where we were at and what, kind of where everybody was living and and then us coming together to make the record so uh, you know we were uh, fortunate enough to to get um, the attention of uh, of David Bottrell and and that uh, really energized us the fact you know we were uh, uh, you know when uh, a tool was putting out earlier records we were you know on board and like wow this is this is fantastic and so um you know when he did anima or anima um with with them 
Um, we were production wise, uh, uh, probably head over heels, you know, that, that record pretty much solidified the wall of sound thick, um, beautifully, uh, created mastered and produced stuff. So certainly, you know, uh, uh, having Dave uh, uh, Bottrell, you know, come into the picture was like, we get to work with him. So I know that was energizing uh, um, about, you know, the second record. And um, yeah, there's definitely pressure. Obviously uh, you, you brought up that there's a, a earlier, you said something about, you know, there's a hit and I guess that with Spotify, you're saying that it's, there's something off of each record. Um I like to think that we, uh, uh, whether consciously or sub subconsciously, uh, subscribe to what I like to call the Aerosmith um, um, logic or the Aerosmith methodology. Please start writing this down. This is important stuff. This is a which is, uh, formulas, right? Uh huh. Well, which is you write two or three slam dunks, and then you do whatever the hell you want with the rest. In their case, it was all blues, like killer blues, you know. Um, but there was always, you could look back from everything from rocks to pump to you name it, you know, there's always just some slam dunk, awesome tunes. And I think we wanted to, you know, after uh, the fans supporting us, you do get, you do want to give them something that they, they're gonna enjoy. Yeah. At the end of the day, you really do want to accomplish that. And so you try to not create anything like you've done before, but do your thing and then hope for the best and, and, and do your job too. you know, use your, use your craft, um, use some repetition like Mozart did, or, uh, you know, we've, we've all known that for a really long time. The repetition is pretty good. Um, so you use your craft and you, and you do your best to create some things that are going to draw people to you. And then you take the rest of that time and you do whatever the fuck you want. And, uh, and, and we enjoy both of that. I like being, you know, some of the constraint force can force good things out of you. Um, having some parameters uh, that you have to work within, you know, to, to really make that work, uh, uh, you know, try to get a, a metal band that's all screaming and no, you know, no singing chorus like you brought up, you know, what, what is it? Is, is it a chorus? Is it a refrain? Right. So how do you get that um, to be something that's palatable, you know, and, and not sell out to your own audience or sell yourself out like to the music gods. And then, you know, like, no, you got to do your thing inside of the band and try to pay attention and, uh, you can hope for the best. At the end of the day, you don't know that it's going to work, but uh, you know you you put your nose to the grindstone and throw some riffs at you know each other and and uh, pay attention and hopefully the songs really help you. You know they really help write themselves if you really listen. I think. Well, it's one funny thinking about that transition from album one to album two. I almost wonder if you you can't remember because it it seemed pretty seamless, and I think. It, Things got way more listenable, in my opinion, on that on on the next record in terms of the the arrangements. I think there was a little more focus on hook. You guys have always been great at finding a groove. I mean, there's something you guys just there's a very kind of distinct mud vein riff groove thing that is simplistic enough for most people to be able to kind of 
understand and and connect with and then you there's deviations on that but i think you know speaking of that hey we need a few of these slam dunks uh not falling is just all time that's just a standout song uh for that record for for me where i was just like man it's it's cool because the band is expanding i think it showed chad really developing as a singer being able to do kind of pull more tools out of the the toolkit show his diversity and I think, you know, just, just kind of kind of hone in on Chad for a second. To me, like when you really go back and listen to the records, he could just, he, when he screamed, it kind of reminded me of Phil Anselmo a little bit where it wasn't full on, oh, I'm barking. There was always some tonality. There was always a little bit of melody and hook. Fucking great rhythmically, like his patterns were catchy even if he wasn't singing the patterns really actually grabbed you as well so there's always something to kind of uh grab you with that with not falling which i guess probably more so than previously was probably at the time probably the biggest like radio hit the band had or or, or song song like that does that kind of alter the perception of like oh now we're a radio band now we have to make sure we write songs for the radio and i'm in a very similar situation where we absolutely have to have those those conversations because the way i look at radio for bands like mudvayne and bad wolves is like we're metal bands but the the radio is like the commercial for the record that gets those people to come to the show or check out the whole record and so it is important um without obviously going so far down a rabbit hole where you feel like you're not representing yourself. You know, it's, it's a, it is a fine line. Like you're kind of uh, doing a tightrope little, little walk there. So can you speak to that at all in terms of feeling that maybe not pressure to follow up, but maybe worrying mm-hmm. about it's not catchy enough. It's not hooky enough. Um, so to kind of return a little bit to the, the Aerosmith methodology, we were looking for uh, a, a slammer, a ballad and a weirdo. You know, it's kind of uh, what we try to get to, to, to push out and and uh, and then let the rest be. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, a slammer is obviously, you know, going to be in that determined dig kind of vein. A ballad is going to be, you know, in that world so cold kind of uh, uh, vibe. And a weirdo is going to be, well, a whole bunch of mud paint. <laughs> uh, uh, but... Uh, uh, yeah, we did have fun uh, with writing those specifically, but uh, there's obviously pressure. Uh, uh, the label wants you to perform, you know, they're kind of looking over your shoulder, seeing, you know, they want to start hearing, you know, demos and cuts and stuff as you're in the studio. And and so uh, uh, there's definitely some external pressure exerted on you. Um, but I think... I think we held ourselves mostly to account on it. I think we really wanted to uh, uh, maintain our ethos of, of uh, protectionist uh, strategy. This is ours and we're gonna keep it that way. While also having a great desire to, to, draw, to, to draw the fans to us and to do something that we thought that they would really embrace, that they would get, that, that it would vibe with them you know, on, on a visceral level. Um, and we tried to work, work toward, uh, toward those things. So, um, 
at the end of the day, there was nobody that said, you know, this is going to be it. And we, we already kind of knew what the, what those songs are. Once you got the batch of songs kind of ready for pre-production, you're already kind of pointing the finger at one, two or three of these things, these pieces that you're like, okay, this is going to work or not, you know? Uh, but I don't know. What, is, what are you going through? You know, with, uh, are, are you getting some external pressure or internal pressure from other members that, that are maybe well, um, curious about what that is to try to explore a more, uh, a more direct, um, like kind of method approach, um, if you will. Our, our label guy, Alan Kovac, he pretty much says almost the same thing. He's like, just give me three singles. And that's basically he, he puts it, it's like it's ammunition, right? That's the ammunition we go out there and fight the war with. And then you guys do whatever you want. Me, I really think the breakdown is like this because I don't, if you really listen to the super heavy stuff on the, the Bad Wolves records, I mean, I don't, for all the bands that are on the radio right now, yeah. newer bands, we're like the, the band where you hear us on the radio and you listen to record, it's really fucking heavy. The disparity is wide. Yeah. So in some ways it's cool because we can do anything. And no one's going to say, oh, how, do, how dare you do that? We've already done the lightest song. We've already done the heaviest song. But I think the key is to kind of straddle that line. So I want, to me, I want three songs that we could say could maybe be radio songs, three songs that heavy as balls kick you in the dick songs, and I want five to six in the middle that are could be, you know, that, are, that combine all the elements. They're heavy, but they're catchy, you know? And this is what I call like the, uh, the, the sad, but true uh, vibe where it's heavy enough for all the heavy people, but it's catchy enough for all the regular people. And that's a, and it's a real art to have something that combines all that stuff. And, and it's something I'm always trying to crack, but I feel like an album is all about balance. It's all about, man, it's a little too much in this. Doesn't album feel like it's a little too in this direction? Isn't it a little? And so you're con constantly nipping and tucking to get it where you want it to be. And you're shaping it like a sculpture to, to a certain degree, which is why you keep writing and you keep, hey, let's try it. You know, or me, I'll write, I'll listen to what we have. I'm like, you know, we don't have a song like this. Let me, let's try and write a song like that. And even if it doesn't work, it's just cool to like write with a purpose and really now that we're in a situation where some of us guys have a little more say in what, what goes on, it, you know, me, I think very conceptually and I'm very much into like big ideas. Hey, the record should be about this. Hey, it should, we should be making this statement where I think some people just work and they make songs and that's it. Where me, I'm like, I, I tend to have this, I guess, uh, this ambitious, grandiose idea, which can be a little bit, pretentious or <laughs> uh, oh, not always uh, executable, you know, but, but that's just the way, I, that, that's the way I think. And, and when it works, right, when you actually have a concept and then you execute it, then it's really cool. But then it's also like sometimes big risk is big reward or big failure. Sure. But sure. I think, but the way you're describing it, I'm actually like no joke between me and you, I'm trying to absorb some of what you're saying and take it with me because I think Mudvayne, you know, we're t 10 years plus removed from the last record. I think wh wherever your fans are, 
they're your fans. They're like super fans because yeah, there was those few people that listened to the radio songs or whatever, but the people that got into the albums and got into the weirdness and absorbed every morsel, they're probably with you for life. And I think that is really, I mean, you want both, but I think that's what you build a career on is those people, the super fans, the ones who know all the lyrics and they know track 11 and they know the B sides and they've, you know, I think that's a great, that's where we really make our bones. And and that's the way I am about my favorite bands, right? It's like, if I'm listening to Metallica, I'm not going to put on Anderson Sandman. I'm going to put on My Friend of Misery or I'm going to put on Freight Ends of Sanity, you know, th- you know? Yeah, I do. I do, man. Um, writing music uh, is this fascinating thing you know there's ah, there's craft um there's just straight desire um magic though that's the key you want so, the best is when something that you don't plan something spontaneous something oh you go to this chord when i go to this thing and then it makes a a thing you no one anticipated that's my favorite part yeah uh and i i'm really fortunate that i find myself now in a situation um with soft and glare that uh, I'm free to do whatever. And, and that's really part of the ethos in that band is everybody pretty much does whatever they want, period. Is you that know? so for people to know, this is an instrumental band you have now that it's described as fusion. I don't know what you describe it. It's, you know, it's a little proggy. It's a little fusion. It's got some jazz stuff. It's just, it's badass and you're just shining it's like it's a great i think uh display of kind of all the things you can do in in ways that were not you really couldn't even see all that in in mudvane you're allowed to do a lot more exploratory playing as a bass player yeah obviously you, you know if you pare some of the instrumentation down pull out you know what most people focus on which is a voice um take that out and then obviously all the instrumentation becomes much more uh, uh, visible. And then, you know, then take away things like huge, chunky, stacked walls of guitars and take away shit tons of cymbals and double kick, you know, um, and take away 220 BPMs and, <laughs> and, you know, and, and start to uh, uh, do some groove things and add a lot more space. And in a three piece without the vocalist, without all those things, there's a whole lot of space. Yeah. And so really everybody has the opportunity to, to be heard, um, which I think is really very cool. A lot of, you know, some of the, the metal things um, there, it's more of a, of a whole is this whole thing where in, instead of kind of these individual things that are making up a whole, you can pick out the individuality with something like you know, the song. The song and the part takes precedent over the instrumentalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, right now, I'm I'm fortunate to find myself in that situation, and you know, it sounds like you're trying to figure out what to do uh, a little bit with uh, you know the songs and. Yeah, you know. I, I feel lucky because. I think there's so many bands out there that their biggest problem is having the ability to get the song out to people, to big audiences. Yeah. And, you know, we've already had success at radio. It just gives you a giant advantage 
And so to be, to have a name and some recognition in the brand at radio, but then we also get to be heavy and be cool is like the best of both worlds. And and it's not that I I even, uh, I'm not saying heavy is better, right? Or being technical is better. It's just, it's just who we are, right? It's just how we play. Like it's just being true to the musicians you are and being the most authentic version of yourselves. But it is, but for me, it is a, that authentic version is a versatile thing. I'm in, I, my favorite albums are still the black album and countdown to extinction. Nice. Vulgar display of power, like, like along with, and I could name you a bunch of super crazy metal albums that are very extreme, you know, Meshuggah Future Breed Machine or At The Gate, Slaughter The Soul, Carcass Heartwork, that bands that, and albums that changed my life. That's one of my favorites, Heartwork. Oh, dude, flawless. And but that I got it the day it came out. (laughs) Well, I got it. I got that and At The Gates after they had both broken up. (laughs) (laughs) I think they had broken up within like six months uh, or to a year after that. It was like, I got that. And then then Max Cavalera left Sepultura and I was crying in my cereal. <laughs> but uh, who's listening to Chick Corea and Andrew Lloyd Webber and Death and Carcass and Obituary and Morbid Angel and Dark, you know, yeah. that's all at the same time. You know, I refuse to be kind of, I've always been a little bit of a fast food kind of person with music. Um, I wear them out, I get them and I, and I chew them up and, and I go through it fast. Um, but they're obviously bands that I return to again and again and again. Um, I brought up Aerosmith every now and again, I've got to be on an Aerosmith marathon where yeah. I listen to the records and that's what I'm listening to for like a week. Every 10, sometimes it's Zeppelin. Sometimes it's the Beatles. Sometimes it's Floyd. I go through some phases and sometimes it's Fiona Apple. And, uh, so, you know, you have good, I, you have good I, taste, sir. What's that? You have good taste. <sighs> you know, uh, uh, I have a lot of people who turn me on to a lot of things. I think their taste has always been better than mine. I've just been uh, uh, fortunate enough to have people who are like, I think they just don't, I think they understand that I need help. <laughs> like, no, but, guy- there's nothing like having really smart, cultured friends mm-hmm. to turn you on to things. Like my best friend, Will, had the biggest record collection and he'd be, he was like my music guru. Like, okay, listen to this uh, Iron Maiden record. Listen to this... Uh, you know, parliament record. Like he was the, you know, my minister of diver- of diversification right on. from a musical education standpoint, even though I had, my father's a jazz pianist. So I, I got all that as well. So. Okay. <laughs> lucky, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no doubt. I definitely l- lucky me. Um, a lot of kids, you know, their parents are probably playing them, you know, black Sabbath. My father was playing bitches brew. So. <laughs> dude yeah that's fantastic and even yeah. though it's funny because i'm you know i listen to your record and there's so, this it's so flexible from a from a jazz standpoint and i'm i have no real jazz chops at all uh but if somehow the sensibility snuck in into my the way i see music even if i don't play that way you know i don't have any jazz chops either so um Listen to that uh, record, guys. Soften the glare. Both records, and you will. He is. I do not believe the words coming out of his mouth. Uh, no, I uh, uh, I never studied under uh, anyone, and 
Um, so I have no pedigree in that sense, uh, in a jazz sense. And that's, that's really important to, to that whole world in lots of ways is your pedigree, where you came from, who, who kind of schooled you, what school of thought really made you, you know, uh, come to life as an artist. But, uh, I don't have that, that, that particular history and, and I didn't, uh, study jazz. So, um, the things that I do that are jazz-ish or jazzy, um, are just, ripoffs uh you know i'm probably nicking on somebody's really good stuff uh uh that i heard some point at some point i just totally totally just five fingers uh discount of that um (laughs) without ever meaning to man um but i'm i have to always return to the musicians that i've been fortunate enough to play with yeah and and that has certainly it, it may be the single most important aspect of of my my writing and, and and what I've done musically, um, what people have heard, you know, of, of my playing is really. A, I hope that it's a reflection of of the musicians around me. I, I hope that I've been good enough to listen and, and pay attention and and learn from them and and also steal from them uh, and and take those things that they were offering and and uh, turn them into this nice reflecting pool. Um, and maybe somebody else can look into that pool and see themselves too, like I did. Yeah. Well, we're gonna, I wanna jump around a little bit just to kind of fun things I wanna, I wanna talk about. So I got to see you a few times in the first few years. So I saw you in OzFest, I think on the first record. And then what was another time I saw you guys? Um, I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but I went to a show to see you, but I missed you because I was in the parking lot com- coming to the show, and it was the Summer Sanitarium tour. So, <laughs> Mudvayne, Deftones, Limp Bizkit, Linkin Park, Metallica. And that's on your second record. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. That's it. That's the that's the apex mountain, as as they say. Uh, were you guys first of all? Were you playing? in front of not big crowds because you played so early on a five band bill in stadiums or was it actually decent? Yeah, that would happen too. Yeah. It depends. It, dep- it depended on, you know, the, uh, uh, the city. Uh, sometimes there were people there in droves and sometimes it was a little sparse uh, except up, fr- up front, but uh, that just usually meant that the, you know, the people who were up front were going to pit harder because there was more space to go faster. <laughs> so they're cutting through the pit like really going for it. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, you never kind of, it, it shows like that where you're, where you are the opener, you're the warm-up band and, and you're there to get everybody excited and, and worked up. And um, uh, so I, I think we did that each time. Um, but yeah, you're, you know, most people are there. I've, I've been, I have been harangued uh, or silently uh by front row slayer fans and and just thank goodness for them just this that's your, that's your, your motivation he's sick of the whole set, the whole set <laughs> they didn't blink they didn't move no you said slayer fans you say well this is at the metallica right. show or are you open for slayer yeah yeah that's yeah we reopened i think this these were i'm sure we opened for slayer there's never been a day a festival or something, but it wasn't a tour. You didn't do like a tour opening. Would have been a festival. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, some big festival, and it's probably in Europe, and they were probably not having anything that day. <laughs> hey, but those, listen, I have an even better version of that. God forbid, ended up playing a festival in Spain that we were not booked on. We were just hanging out at the festival to steal catering and bus power in the middle of Spain, and Heaven and Hell canceled and Fear Factory canceled, and we were just sitting in the parking lot, and they asked us to play. And they offered us like 5,000 euros to play. So we're like, fuck it, we'll play. We played at like one in the morning in a desert. It was freezing. And we were not announced on it. And it was one in the morning. Everyone could go home. But we played after Saxon. And there was like 200 people who stayed or 300 people. And there were still people flipping us off. Think about how (laughs) you have to be to hating on a band to stay at one in the morning after you've been at a festival all day for a band you didn't even know was supposed to be there. <laughs> and I respect it. <laughs> I said, man, I was like, yeah, dude, you're awesome, man. Just the whole time, never flinching. No, though, here's the best one. Not the middle finger, the one where they just turned it back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think one of the Mudbane records uh, got a review, something like that. It was a, uh, it was not even a sentence. Sentence. It was just two letters and punctuation. N O period. Okay. Well, that now that's journalism and that's literature. Okay, that's that's everything all, all in one. <laughs> Poetry. Just no period. <laughs> I think someone did that uh, back for a Mudbane record at one point. So do you think the Metallica tour helped you or is it more like just a, something that looked good on paper? I mean, I'm sure it helped us feel better about ourselves, you know, (laughs) we're metal fans. And so we got to tour with Metallica. It was a big deal. Uh, uh, You know, we were probably a little shaken in our boots and, and at the same time, you know, you're making me open for you. Make, I love you know I I love this attitude because I think this is how you be how you become a headliner and stay a headliner where you're like I think it's um almost a visionary thing it's a, a putting out the energy of we're this band right like I feel like with my old band God forbid we never saw ourselves as a headliner we were always opening up for bands so we never got over that hump you know whereas you and I imagine that attitude was shared. By, by most or all of your band where it's like, well, we're the headliner. We're the, we're the main attraction. And that's what carries you to that point. And then we played, actually, we played together in 05 at that, uh, what was that festival? It was in Albany, New York. And uh, I forget, it was the Ted Etoll. I forget the name of the, it was like the New, the New York Metal Festival. I don't know, some weird name. I, for, I forget the name, but I remember... It was you guys in flames. It was a an Ozfest off date or something. It was in flames. Yeah. Azalea dying. Maybe Shadows Fall played. I can't. I can't remember. But it was. I think the only time we ever played with Mudvayne. And I, but I remember seeing you guys at that show, and you were headlining this arena. You know, and there was maybe I don't know three or four thousand people in this arena. And from the time I had seen you on the first record, and then the time I'd seen you in Ozfest till then you guys had become that band. Like you, it just, the sound was there. The lights were there. The presence was there. And it was really cool to see when you, because the previous year we did the same festival and Slipknot headlined. And you're like, you expect 
a band of a certain stature, right, to be holding it down. And you guys fucking held it down. And it was really uh, impressive to see that. Luck. A lot of luck. Uh, work. That's work, though. That's uh, Yeah, yeah. A lot of luck, a lot of preparation, you know. Um, uh, opportunity is what the, uh, comes at the intersection of preparation and uh, something like that. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, we've got very, very lucky to play with other bands that had wonderful fan bases that have been accepting of us. Um, and, and that's, you know, my hats off to, to just metal fans in that sense that, and, and I think that it becomes segregated in some ways, you know, they're like doom metal fans who wouldn't touch some of the glam crap and there are glam metal fans that wouldn't touch some of the real deep cut stuff you know uh, so even at that people are split but metal kind of seems to be have its own bit of its own ecosystem and, and its own support and and so you know Aussie fans seem to not be too put off by the mud vein and and uh, and Rob Zombie fans seem to think we were okay too um so um you know I think we were at a an intersection of time where we were somehow able to to capture people's attention with the work that we were doing um, and maintain our in, our integrity of, you know, this is ours and this is how we want to do this thing. And uh, even though we may not want know what that is exactly at all times, um, but constantly being involved in that process and trying to shape that and, and let it take shape, you know, um, you know, we found ourselves in a very fortunate position to, share a stage with all these bands and open for them and their fans supported us. And, um, I mean, that's luck in some ways, uh, you can't plan for it. You can't work hard, uh, hard enough for it. Some people get lucky and yeah, you know, I'm one of them, I guess. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the image and, and the makeup. And, I, and I'm sure that's something you've probably been asked about at nauseum in, throughout the year so i don't i don't want to beat a dead horse too much uh, well no but the, but what's interesting to me about it is me being a student of this industry right because it when, when you're in a band you're trying to make it you're always like oh what works and how does this band do this and and in my opinion bands that have had a very strong visual component uh be it a slipknot or a band like Ghost or Baby Metal, or you can go down Guar, you can go down the 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 list. It uh, there's these bands tend to get a lot of attention early on, but and there's the idea that there's this skepticism attached to it. I think from uh some people that it's a gimmick and what what have you. Uh, but I'm of the mind, the gimmick will open the door. Right. It'll like it'll get it'll keep you afloat for a while if you have a cool thing. But if you don't have the songs, it won't last. It'll just, you know, and with you guys, because the music is so artistic and, and has all this depth and, and, and clear intentions, was the the makeup and all that? Was that a reflection of the artistic uh contributions i mean were, were you guys trying to make a statement with that or was that more like you know what we got we make great sandwiches over here so we're just going to make a really cool sign so that people can get the sandwiches i, I love the sandwich metaphor that's that's good i'm with it um 
Or it could be anything, you know. <laughs> um, I, it was not any one thing, I would say. Yeah. Um, I, the idea, was it one person's idea? Hey, we should put on makeup? Or does this happen naturally? You guys are all weirdos. <laughs> I, think I, I think I'd have to uh, 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 discuss that with my uh, with the with the guys from Mudbane um, before I would really tell a story. <laughs> someone, someone wants to make sure they credit. I don't even know if I know the story or not. I have a version that I think I remember uh, about how it went down, but uh, but certainly it was something that we were willing. I don't think any of us ever saw ourselves staying um, in makeup. I mean, this is my like shock everyone, but uh, nobody's going to love me after this, but Oh, well uh, I never owned a kiss record. Yeah. So that wasn't a, like, a, <laughs> that, that wasn't a thing to me. Um, and so, uh, uh, Here's the, the thing. They, they, they still sold a lot. So I think they're okay. <laughs> they didn't they didn't hurt because we didn't buy the records right yeah yeah uh, uh but but that wasn't what we weren't interested in in promoting just an image or um i i, I there was a part of the whole let's get ethos to overuse the word um was to bring more to the table than just simple just this just sound yeah or just visual um there was as you probably know it sounds like a um there was much thought put into the content um and that really was a part of the driver for probably everything else that came out of it artistically you know one drives the other yeah music sounding a certain way is going to drive the imagery the imagery being a certain way is going to drive this and that you know it's all kind of a uh, a, a part of itself um, once you're working together. Um, well, there's something kind of bring back to what you said earlier about the angry metal guy. Yeah. And a lot of that attitude is this thing of, of you know, kind of split brain, right? Where they feel just, oh, all we should have to do is make cool music. And, and the thing is, I said, well, that's fine, okay. If unless you wanted to make it your business, if it's your hobby on the weekends and great, just make great music. And, and that's, that's cool. But once you get to the point where you say, we want to make this a business and we want to make it a decent business and we want to do well, you have to think about the totality and not doing that is just kind of being like an absentee landlord. Right. Uh, the truth is, and this is to quote uh, my friend, Finn McKenty from the punk rock NBA, Ultimately, all us musicians, we're in the entertainment business. Sure. And visual component is just important. And even for the bands you don't think are being visually compelling, you take a band like Lamb of God, where it's like, oh, they just look like some metalheads. I'm like, yeah, but they kind of look like the coolest metalheads that you ever want to see. They, they just, they look like how they sound. And even though it wasn't, they didn't have a board meeting <laughs> to decide that, it was very naturalistic it still helps in selling this product that people call lamb of God, right? Mm -hmm. Slayer has a, a visual that goes along, right? The, and it's, it's consistent. It works with the t-shirts and the album covers and the backdrops on stage and the fire, right? It's, 
it's all part of a package. You're selling a, a package that connects everything. I mean, how many kids back in the eighties bought Iron Maiden records because they saw Eddie on the cover. Right. And if you went to the show and then the big Eddie didn't come out, you'd be pissed off because it's, it's entertainment. It is supposed to be fun. And I think um, what you guys did, whatever it was, it was unique to you, you know? And that's the, I think the, the important component It's not like you guys were the first band to wear makeup or the last band to wear makeup, but what you did was unique to you. And this is, I'm going to, borrow another question from John Berklin shout out I, just, I gotta give him love because he he loves me and he you know I gotta, <laughs> he said he asked a question another John Jenny Johnny B question was the plan always to switch the the design on every record or was that something that happened kind of as it went once again, I'm not so certain how much to give away. Yeah, uh, no, no, listen, I don't want to listen. This is uh, like the, uh, the Coca-Cola uh, formula. We don't want to divulge too much if it's. If it's <laughs> um, um, but there was definitely um, um, forethought into the records. The records were, were um, kind of made prior to their making. Um, the concepts were, were thought about and, and we knew what we were up to for a good long bit prior to doing them. Um, because you talked about it, you had discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but as far as the imagery goes, that was more born out of the process, you know, of, of, building the whole thing that that wasn't um something that was that we had the foresight to really uh, say hey this is this is how we're going to change imagery now but it came out of those conversations so once again it's really hard to remove what happened from the idea of what we wanted it to happen um those things are 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 uh they're tied so fun, just feeling like you're working at a carnival <laughs> <laughs> just like just like man it's it's the big show man get ready let's spray me down <laughs> uh yeah it was an odd time man i don't know what tedious uh, tedious i'm sure at, at times especially after the show right who's fighting over the shower <laughs> I, you know uh to go to return a little bit to about, a, a bit about um some of the early days and the expectations you know um there was at one point I will name no names, but I was told that I was not to change that I was, you know, not to change my hair, um, the horns in particular. Yeah. And so, well, you were told you were not asked. Yeah. And of course they were gone within the hour. Yeah. You know, kind of that's that was not ever going to be a part of what we were going to accept yeah. into our world. Um, is this uh, that kind of pop mentality where you know you're going to be preened and pruned and and positioned to take over some slot in some pop universe? That stuff was it, never. That's control, right? Like the idea of you know we're all individuals, and that is a very fucked up feeling of yeah. someone is doing the puppet master thing. You're like, what, 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 what's going on? And especially once you become a viable economic property, sure. all of a sudden you get, you get a lot of 
all of a sudden, a lot, you get a lot of allies. You get a lot of people. Oh, they, wow, everyone has an interest in what we're doing. We're, yeah. we're a year and a half ago. Wow. All of a sudden, you're, you're, you, you want to put their two, two, two cents. And I, I say the funny thing about success is everyone, you know, and this is no, I'm not going to, no disrespect to anyone, but when it comes to the behind the scenes, people want their ideas to be used because once something becomes successful, if their ideas you utilize, then they get to say, I'm that goes on their resume. And it's not like a thing to shit on people or like, that's, that's okay. Like we all have to move up in our careers and, and do things. But sometimes like, for example, if you went to the studio with a producer, right. And you're pretty prepared and the songs are working out. And the producer's like, well, you, you guys sound good, man. I, I don't really have anything to say. Mm -hmm. A producer will rarely do that because if they don't tell you to do anything, then what, then what, what validates their paycheck? They kind of have to get in there. And sometimes you have a producer who goes overboard with this because they're like, well, I got to do my producer thing because that's, if my identity is not on here, then how I'm not valuable as, an asset to a certain degree. And that's, like I said, it's not to diss those people. It's some of that's just natural. Like we all have to, same thing. If you get me in a, on a record and it's like, doc, can you just hit these four power chords? I'm like, why'd you get me? It could have got anybody. I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not just saying it to disparage it, but it success creates a situation where, as I say, success has many fathers and uh, failures and orphan. Right. Right. I, you know, I hate to do anything that is kind of, um, obtuse and doesn't understand that people come to certain situations not necessarily because of ill intent it's just we're all we all have our self-interests not ego exactly and that's and that's okay but it's something us as being on the artist side have to navigate that so that we can kind of protect this uh you know this very delicate thing that we you know when you know and you're in a different situation where you know i i got I mean, I, I joined the band actually in a relative anyway I'm not going to get too deep in that, but you're part of something and you want to maintain its elegance, I guess, mm -hmm. as, 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 a, as a way to put it. Uh, one more John Berkman question, and we're going to kick uh, that fucking guy out of here. But shout out to John. He loves you. <laughs> He's the, the MVP. And it's like, hey, Doc, if you're going to outsource all your questions, what's the point? Here's the point. The point, if I don't ask him, I'll feel bad that he didn't. He'll be like, yo, what happened to that question? <laughs> this would be this is a simple one okay why are there two videos for not falling somebody didn't like one of them okay there you go there you go see simple question simple answer <laughs> i i i don't really know that 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 is the simple answer um why um there must have been some dissatisfaction, you know, either from uh, people at the label uh, or internally. Um, but I don't, I don't remember there ever being a a big blowout over anything. So um, it wasn't enough to to draw blood on any side. Um, Here's the proper answer: just go. You got just got to do like the brush the dirt off your shoulders. Like, listen, man, we had a lot of money. You know, we had money to spend. You know, we wanted two videos, so we had two videos. That's how the budgets were back then. <laughs> um there were some obscene amounts um that yeah, like the hundred thousand dollar video era uh yeah yeah and uh 
Yeah, easy. But here's the thing. You guys did have fucking cool videos. And I think that you you won an MTV Video Award. How many fucking metal bands have an MTV Video Award? Like four? I don't know. It's not that many. They, they, They stopped doing the award for metal. I don't even know when, but probably last year you guys did. It was a viewer's choice award. So. Choice. But that makes it even cooler because right. it means there was people were connecting what you're doing. And why I give that video respect is it's a performance video. And as you know, someone's done a lot of videos. When you can make a performance video compelling, it's a real reflection of the work that was done on it because you're there's a million performance videos, right? We all know the angles. We all know the what goes into it but i some of my favorite videos whether it's pantera i'm broken or weezer say it ain't so uh where it's a performance video but they're just they're just fucking sick and they're fun you know and they just work five minutes alone another great pantera performance video um there's something to loathe and love about performance videos uh um depends on how pretty the people are it depends on how compelling the song actually is. Um, you know, uh, uh, performance videos are are tough, and it's tough to sell to an artist too. I think when they get a, uh, uh, you know, like okay, well let's let's look, look let's look at this treatment here, and what what does this treatment have to say about this about my band? Okay, we have well, a warehouse and yeah. uh, <laughs> some smoke. Okay. You're at a warehouse. There's smoke. Uh, you're in black. You know. Uh, and so these things kind of, they start to sound like themselves and, and it's hard to find original stuff to pitch it. At. I say this, no matter what, if you're going to do me in, in, in a video, I need some slow motion. All right. You got to slow this down. Okay. <laughs> here's the worst thing about me, right? I have back problems, neck problems, knee, <laughs> right? All this stuff. I mean, you go to a video shoot. And you be shooting for 10 hours, your back hurts, you're all beat up, your neck is swollen, and then you look at the video and then they use you for like four seconds. Like, what well, why the fuck was I breaking myself? <laughs> I could be in there for four seconds. Just let, let me know when I gotta do some shit. All right. I'm I'm told <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it can be like that. Shoots are long, that's for sure, man. Um, yeah, dude. The one in Canada, whoo, in the snow, it was cold. It was actually, that's real snow. That wasn't like fake snow. We, it was real snow and it was real cold. Yeah. Um, but uh, worth it, worth it for the effect. I think the only, no, actually I've done a few videos in the cold. We did, we did one in this, actually we shot a video the same place you guys did at the hospital. No, 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 no. We did a, a photo shoot at the mental hospital where you guys did. Yeah. Where is this? Where did you guys, what, what video did you do the, the mental, the abandoned mental hospital in Staten Island? I don't, but I remember this facility quite well. So we did a photo shoot that was freezing. It was like raining out. It was miserable. But then we did end of the world. We did in like, I mean, it was like, it looked like a junkyard. It was just fucking awful. And then I'm trying, oh, and then we shot a video in like the streets of Philadelphia, just like randomly, like in subways and rooftops. And it was, it was February and we were just, and you know, it was, and actually this is funny. The guy shot it on all these 16 millimeter student cameras and half of the footage just didn't work. (laughs) And we did it. We did it after a gig. We did the show, shot it, and then did the song twice at the show. All that footage disappeared. 
and then had to and then shot after the show from like midnight till like five in the morning and lost like half the footage yeah reshoot it so that was fun yeah so that um i I remember that that building that facility because we went exploring there and you you remember it's pretty creepy it was kind of fucked up um and uh lo and behold we went into this section and it was being utilized as a transfer um, point for uh, what we were soon to find out uh, were cadavers. And, and so and it was because this facility, uh, you know, people would, would die while they were in, in the, uh, the, the facility, obviously, of old age, natural causes. Um, and so they had their own morgue. And the, the, the facility was being utilized at that point for, for cadavers. And we didn't know. No one told it. There was nothing like some, there was no locked door. We didn't break into anywhere. We're just like walking around this place and checking it out. And uh, walk in and you're like, whoa, cool. You know, here's, the, here's where you slide them out. And uh, so you open the door and you go, oh, okay, that's a body bag and, and that's a body. And then you're immediately, you know, this is really irreverent feeling. We shouldn't be, you know, what am I doing here? We, we had no idea. This is someone's loved one, you know, someone's child, even if they're 80. Um, this, this, this was someone she was cared for her, loved in, in life. And so you immediately, oh my goodness, you're, you feel like you're treading on sacred, sacred ground there. Uh, um, you know, so you slide the thing back, but yes, we, uh, that was, uh, my first kind of unintentional exposure to, to, uh, a human cadaver. <laughs> so I looked it up. Sorry if I was look, I was paying attention because I was looking this mm-hmm. up. So it's Seaview hospital, mm-hmm. right? It's part of a Staten Island farm colony, which includes 37 buildings planned and developed between 1905 and 1938. But it's the reason why they're preserved is it's considered a historical uh, preserve. Mm. So, yeah, that's some. I'm looking at the pictures and it's it's some creepy ass shit. There's still the gurneys are in there and it's 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 pretty brutal. Um, but it looks like there's like there's a multitude of hospitals that were involved in there, like children's hospitals and you know. Right. So I don't remember which one we went in or you went in, but I definitely remember the gurney and shit. That was some creepy shit. So one of one of the things that was there was not that's the part that I that made it somewhat unsettling is that the body was not whole yeah um, it had been um, that seems illegal you can't just leave bodies <laughs> it was it, it was an unlocked room um, and uh, I, I believe that these the cadavers were probably being used for some type of medical research or um, I don't know what what for but uh, it was definitely um, cold storage and and definitely uh, not a uh, not a, a morphologically correct human. Um, this was someone who had been um, utilized in research or uh, or had had a, tr- a very terrible accident, um, and that was uh, that was disconcerting as well, <laughs> uh, to say to say the least. Uh, but like I said, yeah, you immediately feel like you're treading on sacred ground and whoa you find yourself in that situation not meaning to and you know you're just hey let's go check stuff out nothing weird's gonna happen in this weird place and then something weird happens in this very weird place yeah. uh, lo and behold so i feel like 
you know, I feel good on the, the Mudvayne era, but what this song, what this podcast really hinges on is those in-between times, the weird times, the transitions, the inflection points. And post, this is actually a weird connection. This is actually, and this is when we, we had probably met before this, but around 2010, and this is this is a little nugget for all the people on the on the podcast. There was a conference call between Ryan, myself, Tommy Vexed, and Matt from Mudvayne about doing a project together. I had sent some demos. You know, it's funny. I, I should send you. So the songs, some of the songs I sent you became songs for another band of mine. And I remember you were, you, you made some comments. You're like, you're like, yeah, you know, it sounds kind of like some muse thing. You're like, I'm not really in that, that vibe right now, but I just want you to hear the song and see if you still think it sounds like muse. I just want to, I just want to check, even though there's some, there's some definitive muse jackery, which is it was something I'm, I'm very guilty of in my life. And you know what? I have no shame. All right. <laughs> muse. I, was- I love muse. I love Muse. That I was, I was probably like, "Stop oh. biting on Muse." Yeah, and I was like, "No, we should bite more. We need to <laughs> into this because Muse was just ripping off Radiohead." Radiohead, of course. And then all kinds of bands. Anyway, but yeah. uh, but no. Yeah, so I, I, I used to say to Muse, Muse picked up where Radiohead left off with uh, with the bands, and then took it to a whole another level because they're like heavy metal. They're like a metal version of yeah. of of that, and one of my favorite bands. But anyway, Muse aside, so this was, and looking back on it, this was around, I want to say, 2010, 2011 time, uh, not too far removed uh, from uh, Mudvayne not really being an active band. So even besides that, I mean, what was going on with you after Mudvayne? I mean, was the plan like, I've been making a record every other year for 10 years, I'm burnt out. Was it? You know, I'm going to learn how to uh, crochet was, was it, I mean, was there the, you know, we had that call maybe jamming together. Did you, was there a hundred other calls of people looking to jam with Brian Martini or have you joined their band? What was, what was that initial like year or two uh, around that time period, 2010, 2011, like? Uh, what wasn't planned um, for so, um, that was definitely a, a period of, uh, uh, it was definitely disconcerting, yeah. um, to go from, uh, uncertainty, uh, well, for, to go from, uh, the touring life of, you know, a couple hundred plus shows a year, you know, uh, uh to virtually none, yeah. um, was odd, uh, uh, and, and disconcerting. Um, but I, I found, first of all, I spent about two years reading. Um, what kind of stuff? Was this a uh, learning or self-development or re- just reading novels? What, what were you absorbing? Escapism. Really? Escape, escapism. Certainly. Depression. Escapism. Um, and uh, so I, I went into a reading phase to um to while away my time um which fortunately i didn't you know go down you know a much more destructive route <clears throat> for myself it's like um, reading is as something we don't think about that in, in destructive terms we think about that as an enrichment uh activity 
Yeah. And, and, and so I, I, but it was definitely, I was definitely, you know, maybe a bit of an unhealthy interest that I took in stuffing my nose in pages. Um, I was definitely escaping, um, the reality that I found myself in, um, through all my reading. However, um, uh, it was a privilege as well. And, and I didn't just decide to read a bunch of crap. I decided that I would take the time and instead of waiting until my retirement or whatever that means to to people these days, um, uh, that I wasn't going to wait around to read Anna Karenina and War and Peace and, um, you know, Camus. And I was going to take the time and read all the classics. And so uh, I got into a couple series uh, of books and did everything from, well, you name it, all, all the classics I've spent um, a good couple years reading many, many hours a day um, to escape uh, my own misery, my own self. I was convinced that I was unhappy. And and, and so I, I allowed that in my life and I entertained it. And one of the ways that I kind of coped was was through reading and, and through you know exploring the world in that sense. So uh, uh, I became much more of an internal processor uh, at that point, and because of it, and spent a ton of time really uh, reveling in all these stories and, and all these lives and all these ways of viewing the world. That was maybe the most uh, um, condensed period of, of personal growth for me, uh, definitely in my in my adult life. Mm-hmm. Uh, was the period just following, uh, no longer, uh, touring. Um, so I turned to books and, and that's, that's what I did among many, many other things, but that was like the first couple years, um, after that, but now it's been, you know, a decade. So what else has happened? Uh, uh, you know, I no longer read for, you know, six to eight hours a day. Um, <laughs> uh, I, uh, that was the truth actually then. Um, so, I do a whole bunch of other stuff. I, it depends on how much you want to get get into hobbies. Well, well let's, I mean, let's talk about this idea about depression or yeah. how we deal with depression and what kind of sets that off. I mean, for you, was it just my life was this way and I had a reasonable expectation that my life will continue to be this way and it was just the the physical difference that hey this is my job and this is my passion and now that's absent or was it just the actual what went down or 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 the whole process of of having it the way it happened was it like dealing with um i guess some you know just just bad mojo from that or was it just physically like i want to be out rocking i want to be making records no i was dealing with trauma yeah Gotcha. Straight up dealing with trauma, um, whether that be, you know, externally inflicted or self inflicted, uh, um, whatever that is. Um, I, I, um, fell, fell victim, victim to it. And, and that's to take away my victim status too. Uh, is, um, I'm certainly not going to blame myself, uh, as the victim, but I'm also going to say that I wasn't powerless to, to make some improvements on my life at that point either. And, um, and I didn't go down a terrible path because I did choose to just 
um, kind of uh, uh, escape into myself and escape into the literary world and, and decided that that was how I was going to learn about what it was to be a human. And uh, that was a really informative time in my life, for sure. Uh, I, I hadn't spent uh, any real uh, time reading historic literature. Um, and that really kind of set my mind on fire. Um, so out of all that came so much more now. Um, what I really found after I was able to kind of accept the place that I was in was uh, in normal life, I found friendships and things that I couldn't carry on in a normal way um, on the road. Yeah. I've always been, you know, if you come across me out there, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like happy to have a beer with you, happy to, you know, to, to hang and talk. And then I'm like, you know, peace, love you, bro. See you next time. You know, I'm not somebody who's going to spend hours and hours talking on the phone. I've got like, I've got a real small kind of few people that I talk to on a regular basis. And many of us are like that. I'm not unique in any sense, you know, in that, in that way, I think we all kind of start to get smaller and smaller in our, in our really intimate relationships that we, we hold, um, whether that's being protectionist of ourselves or, 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 or not just don't want to be vulnerable or you just finally find your people, you know, whatever that is. Um, but I, I found finally um, some friendships that friendships that weren't, didn't have anything to do with my being a, you know, a guy from a, some band that was on MTV, you, you know, uh, people didn't find that out about me until after the fact. And I think I found that refreshing too, that, that I could be, uh, you know, not the guy from Mudvayne, just, just Ryan, you know, and, and, and appreciated for not being that guy, but for, Hey, you know, let's, let's talk about this subject or that subject. And, um, you know, that made me feel differently about myself and, and, and I was able to have some kind of a, put a little, some roots down. You know, my friendships really became some of my roots in my life. I, th I you might have said this earlier, but I, but where do you live now? I'm in Virginia. Virginia. Okay, so you didn't say that earlier. Okay, what part of Virginia? Uh well, I'm in Southwest Virginia. Oh, okay. So very rural. Um, What's your very, address so people can stalk you? No, I'm just kidding. Right. It is. Uh, <laughs> can we dox him, please? Can we? Um, yeah, uh, I choose to live pretty rural. Um, I still really enjoy it. Um, we call it real America, guys. That's the real. I live in fake America. He lives in real America. <laughs> it's all real. It's all real. Uh, but but uh, yeah, I, I like the space, and and I really appreciate having a a lot of open open air and uh, uh, less vehicles. And, yeah. Um, I drive them. I'm, I'm guilty. Uh, uh, so I'm not coming down on, on people who drive or ride gas burners for sure. Uh, however, uh, I try to keep put and, and find a place that I want to be and uh, stay there. Well, listen, it's, it's so interesting because there's so much to unpack there because you have the, I think the element of the kind of corrosiveness that comes with fame 
mixed with the monotony of the touring lifestyle, which, uh, which creates a lot of social anxiety for a lot of musicians where they, as I call it, the guy stuck in the back lounge, which is, I think a, no, I, I listen, I, I think that's a, a disease to a certain degree because it, it puts a fear response with connection to the people that are kind of the ones that give you the ability to do what you do. Right. So it, it's like, in a sense, there's almost, it's almost an adversarial relationship where it's like, Oh, these people pay my bills to some degree by supporting what I do, but I'm also afraid that if I get cornered in a bar that if they're, they're going to like want pictures or autographs or, and I, and I'm lucky enough to have had very limited versions of that, that have been always manageable. And if it got above a certain point, then it would become no longer fun. And so I have a lot of empathy, or I try to have a lot of empathy for, for people that have uh, much bigger versions of fame, but I think that can fuck you up. And I think the things that you were talking about are is trust, right? You were able to form relationships with people in trustworthy ways because it wasn't a function of your stature or your or you're being famous or connection to fame or that guy from this thing. And it's the idea of people wanting to be close to you and get to know you because of who you are, not what you are. And that is like, because playing, you know, there is an element of fame that's disruptive to our fundamental humanity. You don't become, you're not a person, you're a, a totem, you're a thing on a stage. You're and in your guy's case, you're, a cartoon character, right? You're not even, you're a power ranger, um, which I think dis, you know, can kind of disembody you from what it is to even be like, why am I doing this? What am I here for? Is it, you know, and, and, and so I think that, can, that, and me, I struggle for so long in music that anytime I get any, I advance or I get more attention, I can really appreciate it for what it is because I know the opposite of that when no one's paying attention and no one wants your autograph and no one wants your picture. That's also, it's like, well, we can't sell any tickets and we can't sell any CDs and that's it. Your career is over. Right. So you kind of, you want thing a, because that's what's going to make it work. But if you get too much of it, then that sucks. But then if you have no attention, that sucks too. Right. So like many things, it's all about that balance in, in the middle. But so I think there's that, that element of what, what you said, but you know, maybe you you know you you kind of spoke about reading as as if it was some big detriment or something like that you were overindulging in. But I have to imagine you seem like a very healthy, happy person, and maybe that's just me. Maybe that's you now. You know, maybe if I, I would have spoke to you eight years ago or something. But there, what's that? Different people between that then and now. That that that, that reshaped me. I I I. I it, it, it was blunt. It was like getting hit with a hammer and cut with a scalpel. It, it was blunt in its usage and how I was using it. And it was also very finitely going in and opening some passageways um, and in my mind. And so there was, there was both inside of it. I, I was misusing it a little bit, just like you misuse just about anything. Um, kind of everything has an LD50, right? And so uh, the book, the reading, I was a little overboard with it, you know. Um, 
instead of what you had to have gained wisdom. There's wisdom there, right? Though. Uh, I don't know that I have any to quote Ravi Shankar, but, um, (laughs) um, but there's, there's some instruction there. Yeah. Um, Certainly for myself, um, at least, I don't know that it's instructive for anyone else, but if I find myself in that kind of situation again, I can, I will know that I, um, uh, can choose to, to go down that path or do something else. And I really felt pretty compelled at that time to, to really allow myself into that zone where it was a bit un- unhealthy. My, my, you know, checking out with most of reality and checking in to the books that I was reading. And yes, I did benefit greatly from it. That is the, that's the now, uh, uh, hopefully is that, you know, that you get to see a happier person now because I did go through this whole process with myself. Um, and I allowed myself to kind of grieve the loss of, of, of my, my career in a way, um, because it certainly felt so, uh, to be left in the lurch. Um, but, um, as we, you know, as I moved forward with my life, um, I found more freedom and was able to then take the time that I had and and now reinvested in some more positive things. Yeah, but some uh, of that had to be self-imposed because, like I said, we got on the phone together. We were trying to, as you say in the streets, holla at you. Yeah. I have to imagine there were, you know, a few phone calls, people trying to, hey, hey, Ryan, what, what are you doing? We, we got a thing. I mean, th- th- I'm sure that happened, right? Uh, some, I would, th- I would say probably less than people would expect, I guess. Because um, you're not on social media, right? If you were posting on, on the gram every day, all those licks, people would be like, yo, we need the guy with the licks, okay? He's on yeah. the gram, he's slapping it up. Call, give him a call, call him up, right? Pharrell <laughs> okay. would have been calling you, you know? <laughs> I try. I was I was ignoring pretty much all offers. That's uh, what I'm saying. It's 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 all about. I think we attract. We, you know, we kind of we get what we attract, right? So you were you were you were putting out a different kind of frequency. Yep, I was putting out kind of stop in the name of love uh, vibes. You know, I'm done with that shit for now, and and I need to be, and it served me well actually. Um, Maybe people uh, are unhappy that I was less productive, but um, as far as putting out music, now, did I stop creating things? Not for a second. So, um, you say things. So, so are you creating things other other than and music? Of course. Like, yeah. Like what? What are we talking about? Sure. I was a flower farmer for a couple of years. Oh shit. Indeed. Were you yes. selling these flowers? Or it was just for your like for your own. No, selling as well. Yeah. Okay. Local local florist, <laughs> uh, dahlias. As a matter of fact, tubers. Okay. So okay. So I have it. I have it all figured out. Okay. This is the vision. <laughs> okay. This is like the, the Jamie Josta pitch. Uh, you and Jim Martin from Faith No More. Right. He's the pumpkin farmer. Right. He <laughs> pumpkins and flowers. So you get like riffs. And pumpkins and flowers and bass licks you guys need to meet up all right how many how, how many other heavy metal farmers are there out there all right that's what i want to know not enough probably a lot growing weed we probably know that <laughs> man there's a lot of hair farmers out there 
Heroin? Hair farm. Oh, hair, hair farm. farm. <laughs> and heroin. I'm sure poppy. Poppy. I mean, why not? Don't do that. The, the feds will show up, guys. All right. Not recommended. Uh, there's a, there is a, an art form to creating beautiful arrangements and doing things like that. So I, I am a, um, I'm a fan of all things natural uh, and try to spend as much time as I can. You know, uh, I'm in the woods daily by myself with my dog. And uh, unless it's sleeting or pouring rain, if it's snowing, I'm in it. If it's really hot, I'm in it doesn't matter. I, I, I really enjoy being on the trails and uh, uh, being kind of on my own. Um, but I like seeing the Galax on the ground and then the rhododendron uh, stands. And I want to uh, lift some rocks and find a little spotted newt. And um, I want to explore my, my territory. I'm still fascinated with, with the flora and the fauna of kind of everywhere that I, that I get to encounter. So there's a, a, a latent uh, field researcher in me that, that I just really have never uh, um, taken the time to, to nurture. Uh, I've got all these other things that I like to do, like music it gets in the way of my being a field scientist. Yeah. Wow, a field researcher. Well, I th- listen, to me, the thing, the one component that ties all that together is curiosity. You're, yep. you're someone that is driven by by being curious and it's something that, and try not to take this the wrong way, I think is in a sense childlike, right? Sure. Um, I embrace that. Yeah, and that, I know, and I, I meant it in a way it was not to be, I, in, in a sense that I think a lot of adults lose curiosity. They lose uh, kind of being able to sit there and for lack of a better phrase, smell the roses uh, let's just take. I'm a Rosarian as well. I, I know specific things about roses. <laughs> I bet you do. Listen, Valentine's Day is coming up. I might put you to work. All right. I might have to like, <laughs> tell me what to get, but you know, make me look good. Uh, send me some. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but, um, but I, that seems to be the thing. And I, and I'm, and I admire that because it's something that I think a lot of us lose when we're much younger. Because we're told get a job, pay the rent, get an education, get no, no, don't be, don't get a degree in that, get a degree in this, so that you know practicality, which I get. We're all trying to survive out here, and uh, you were able to kind of explore these things, and still able to ex- ex- explore these things. But this kind of goes back to what I said, like right at the beginning, you're someone, and this is me having a very kind of very limited interaction with you, like feeling something, there's something spiritual about your approach to all this. I mean, is, are you, are you a, someone who meditates? Are you someone who kind of gets something uh, divine about kind of connecting with nature or being in oneself and kind of, you know, the mindfulness that surrounds that? Is that something that you work on? And, and is that part of this process? I don't see how it's removed from it. Um, I'm I'm most at ease probably uh, in those scenarios uh, that I put myself in. Um, nature's a wonderful teacher. Yeah, 
and and um, I may not be the greatest student, but even a bad student, um, if I just keep at it, I'm going to absorb some through osmosis. <laughs> what is um, what has nature taught you about yourself? You think? that I'm resilient, mm. uh, more resilient than I know. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a pretty uh, 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 solid thread uh, of nature is it is resilient uh, in a, a level find a way, right? It's Jurassic Park. Um, you know, it is very true. And as soon as you look at, a, look at all the, the, the production methods uh, of plants, you start seeing how, you know, I was looking in the snow today and um, the wind had blown everything out of the trees and, 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 and cleared everything off of the top of the snow, except from where my footfalls were in the snow from the day before. And in those footfalls were myriad of different, you know, shapes, sticks, leaves, seed pods of seeds and different colors, different textures, some uh, some small, some large, different, different types of cones um, in some space that's this big, you know, and you can look at the top of a rock and see different types of lichens that are getting ready to create new soil um, because that's what they do. Um, and that's everywhere. So that fascination, um, you know, I think Graham Nash is, is, is on to that too, is that you know, I'm curious about everything. Um, that, I think that is uh, something that life couldn't, it couldn't beat it out of me. Um, and, um, you know, things that have befallen me or that um, I haven't had go my way, it hasn't changed my, my view on that. I have, I still have a connection to the earth and to plants and birds and, and nature. And, um, and I'm, fortunate enough to find myself in an area that I really love to explore daily. And that, that, it turns me on, you know, it's my part of my exercise regime, which has helped me be healthy as well. You know, I, I you're always uh, credit, bro. All right. Six pack Jackson. That's what we call you in the streets. All right. <laughs> uh, well, I, I have to do from my mental health yeah. to be honest. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm somebody who can't sit, for super long periods, unless I'm doing this, like reading, and then and then I'm fine. Um, but uh, uh, to leave me to my my own device, devices, just sitting still hurts my back, hurts my brain. Yeah. And I have weight. Hey, sitting is the new smoking. All right, as someone who's sitting in a chair right now, probably. <laughs> yeah, I keep adjusting myself here. Um, but yeah, man. So it, it provides me with the the connection to all the things that I really loved and. I think people do find themselves getting separated from it by their jobs and, and by all the have to stuff that you have to do, you, you know, like take, you got to take care of the, you got to take the garbage out. Okay. Well, you've got to learn this thing to, to live. You've got to go to school or you've got to take care of your children or, or your, your elderly parents or your dog or whatever the hell you got to take care of. There's a whole lot of take care of and just have to do in life. And all those things take up a lot of time and time is an amazingly, you know, finite resource in our lives. So um, you, being able to have time to, to explore your own creativity, to, to find yourself in a situation that you find inspiring. And, you know, I was inspired by looking at all these 
these things that I don't know exactly what they are. I know what some of them are from um, because I, I was a flower grower. So I, I know what some of the seeds look like, but many of these things are, are totally foreign to me. And so I get online just like everybody else does and start looking things up and like, oh, wow, this grows in my region. Very cool. Is it endemic or is it an invader? Or, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious about all of that. So maintain your curiosity by putting yourself in a situation to, to be curious about things too. You know, it's not just, it's kind of like you got to do the work to kind of get the work done. You don't just, the work just doesn't happen on its own. You know, just like, oh, I'm creative all of a sudden. You know, I kind of get motivated. I get antsy. I got to do some stuff. But it, that doesn't make me mean I'm creative, you know. But those kind of things, the exposure to um, novel, novelty, mm-hmm. exposure to novel situations turns my brain on. That's, that's, that's a curiosity. And me, I'm uh, botanically ignorant, so I'm, I'm not going to comment on, 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 on any of that. But another thing I think is a through line between your your playing and what makes that so phenomenal and something like this is you're clearly someone who has an attention to detail that's unique. You see things that other people don't see, which means probably as a musician, you hear things other people don't hear, which allows you to hone in on these details and create things that are just on the next level, you know, and I I just want, you know, from me to you, man, people love you, you know, like I think, uh, and you probably, because you're not really on social media, you're not out there, you know, you, you probably don't know it, but, but I think one of the things that's, that I'm excited for, I'm excited for people to listen to this uh, because they do love you and they want to hear from you. And I'm, and I'm, I'm really glad I could be a part of that. Um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go in a couple minutes, but, but one question. So, so I tried not to ask you too many things that I feel like people have asked you too much. So I'm not going to get into the meme really but what i will ask you about the meme is which meme has affected your life more either positively or negatively the bird dang one berber dang excuse me or paul rudd slapping the bis which one has infected your life more <laughs> um Man, I don't know. Man. Uh, but has there been a lot of slapping the bass, man? Has been a lot. Has been a lot of that. I don't. I don't even know what this is. You don't know what this is? Oh my god! See, this is what happens when you move to rural Virginia and you don't hang out. You got you, know, you probably got three friends. None of them have TVs. There are they only collect flowers too and hang out in the woods. And <laughs> internet. <laughs> now I feel like an idiot, dude. There's this movie called "I Love You, Man." And Paul Rudd and Jason, uh, what's his face, are in it. And he's talking, there's this whole through line in the movie about Getty Lee and Rush. And they go see Rush. And he's like, he's like, slapping the bass, man. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, tell you know, when someone's telling a joke, oh, my friend told this joke and you're trying to do it. It's like, you know, it's lost all meaning here. I'm sorry. I did not help your joke be funny, man. I, I Here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I just presumed it didn't invade <laughs> your life, but you're just, you're, you're, you're just doing your thing, hanging out with normal people who don't watch. Me, all I do is watch movies. You know how you with the books? That's me. With, that's with all the posters back here. This is my life, all right? I'm watching <laughs> it 50 times. That's my problem. 
<laughs> but me, I have no shame. You know, you're like almost like, Doc, I read too much and it's a problem. And me, I'm like, I watch many movies, but can I watch some more movies? <laughs> Man, uh, my wife wishes I would watch some more movies with her. You know, we get into like shows. And, uh, uh, right now it's SG-1. Okay, I've done all Star Trek things. Okay, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Star, Star Trek. Trek. I'm sorry. I know I'm I'm a Trek head. So uh, I, mean, Trek I, I have I have a Klingon dictionary. So do you have like a, a Klingon like like thing you can stick on your head so you can like be like fake Klingon like just on your forehead so you can just like I mean you're only, a guy so you should have like the prosthetic only when she's ovulating. Okay. I would go to the supermarket like that. It makes me more manly. It makes me more manly, and she likes that at that it's time. Like a, it's like a furled brow, like a fucking crow magnet. You know, people just, <laughs> don't know. Don't fuck with that guy. <laughs> no, but um, I'm right now. It's SG one, which is, of course, you know, like Canadian, like Dick Dean Anderson in there being understated with his puns and. Um, it's it's pretty fantastic. Don't right. unless you're unless you want ten seasons of SG one. But uh, uh, no, we do our shows and stuff, and uh, so I, I may shun some things, but I'm very much just like everybody else in that sense with shows and spending too much time sitting watching Netflix. And <laughs> oh, by the way, there's one before I let you go. There's one band you did between this time that we didn't talk about. It's a band called Karai. Uh-huh. And it's this really fucking, I can only find one song on YouTube and it sounds amazing. The singer's awesome. I was like, mm-hmm. who is this? And I know the drummer Abel, because mm-hmm. he's my one of my best friend's boyfriends and he works for Korn and Seven Dust. And But uh, what happened with that band? Where, where, I couldn't find the EP on Spotify. What's going on? Why are you hiding out? You're making cool stuff and you're hiding it from us. Uh, uh, yeah, that was just a, 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 one of those situations. Somebody asked me uh, to do it. And of course, okay, it wasn't like you're a band. You were just being a cool guy. Uh, well, I think the thought was to see if it would work. And, um, but it wasn't something that I wanted to go forward with. Uh, I think... Um, I was, yeah, less, less apt to go forward with that, but, um, I enjoyed, you know, that particular session and, um, I really, you know, you always want some things to work and, and when they don't, you, you're disappointed and maybe that's kind of partly why I shied away from things probably too, is I had far too many things that, and I, and, and it's happened a couple of times where, I've talked to a couple semi-high-profile people, well, high-profile people, uh, and and they have asked, and then and then, then they go away, and you don't hear from them again. Yeah, and and, and that's totally fine. Um, it, but it definitely makes you you know feel like there's the there's the the industry who keeps crying wolf. You know, and, and so you just start to kind of shut down like, well, all this is BS anyway. So I'm just not going to pay attention to it. I've got my life over here that I'm leading and it's less stressful without thinking about that junk anyway. So peace out. I'm over here living my life. And so uh, that's really the tack I have taken. Um, sorry, the alliteration I just drives me nuts. But that tack I've taken. Um, 
with it is to not be completely dismissive, but um, to do some things, but also have very low expectations of, of things actually happening. And I also have found things about myself. I'm probably not meant to be anyone else's man or playing anyone else's music. I'm meant to do my thing and I'm most happy in that situation. And I'm probably going to be the, the best at doing my thing as opposed to trying to please someone else. But you did do one cool thing that I also failed to mention. It was in my notes and I just didn't. And I just, because we got so wrapped up in talking about the soil and the spirit. <laughs> play with corn. Uh-huh. It was just one tour. Mm-hmm. And dude, there's, I, I was watching some footage and it's so sick. And it's like, first of all, like I said, he's looking shredded wheat up there. He's, he's looking good, good shape. All right. He's, you know, and the sound and the thing I was, I was interested is you have such a definitive sound, especially with, with Mudvayne and then with Soften the Glare. Like it's even, it's, a, it's like a different kind of tone, but it's very much your own thing. With something like Corn, was it a situation where they're like, yeah, this is kind of, we need the fieldy tones. So you just do that. Or would they? Not at first. Not at first. I think they were like, hey, do your thing. And then I did my thing and they were like, no, nah, do it like fieldy. <laughs> uh, you know and and um i sound though is so instrumental to the sound of corn that's correct his sound is is definitely a, a very a major com- component to with the way that the whole band sounds so um i i, I agree with them yeah. <laughs> um and and uh although i'm no good at that yeah, um, I, I found myself falling back into my own things, and it was just dis- disheartening too. I'm like, ah, because I'm like, sorry, but I think my shit sounds fucking killer this way. I think it sounds good this way, um, and now I'm trying to have to like fix it to like reverse engineer somebody else's thing, yeah. you know, and uh, and that was uh, difficult, if not near impossible for me. Um, I'm as I I'm said. Not- the most overqualified man in, in, in new metal, even though, you know, no, you know, I don't know how comfortable you are with the new metal term, but, but literally like, I, I actually think about that where your style and your skill set is so defined and refined that, yeah, like you probably, for you to be happy, it has to be something that you're building it from the ground up and you're, you, what you do is part of the foundation. Kind of, you know, I, I'd be happy to be, uh, uh, to uh, find my, you know, if, if someone were to come to me and say, hey, there's this wonderful uh, uh, voice, she's, you know, there's this person and her voice is amazing and we need some killer lines, like an Alanis Morissette situation yeah. where we come to your choir, something where a bass is bass okay. player slamming. Yeah, or something, you know, where somebody is allowed to do their thing, like Flea was with those songs. It sounds like, you know, well, Flea back in that yeah. stuff. And it was killer, you know. And so I can... That Mars Volta is no longer a band, because he, he, Flea played the bass on the first Mars Volta record. That thing is all over the place. And they, they improv, improvise a ton. And yeah, yeah. that would have been interesting. <laughs> but I, I would have to be let to do my own thing and, and that's hard for someone who has an artistic uh, a vision yeah. um, if they have their vision uh, I'm not somebody who's going to want to impose my own on them I'm just going to say man you should somebody else is going to be better for your situation 
So if there's, if, if I have any wisdom, um, it is only that I am not the right man for the job sometimes. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> listen, and, and I, and I, and that's literally the conversation in a sense we had back in 2011, which was you guys are on this thing. I'm kind of my thing. And I don't think it would work. And, and, but you didn't, it was not in like some arrogant way. It was in a kind of straight. I don't want to muck it up. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like it was, it was in a very, like you, you were just being transparent and, and being, you know, being honest about it. Um, but I love what you do. Like I said, I'm, I'm just, listen, I'm, this is like a bucket list uh, thing for me in terms of having you on the show. You were on my original list of people that when I, when I did this in, in terms of like, not that I even thought it would happen, but I would, I hoped and I had, I had wished. And, and uh, this has just been an in, incredible, you know, and I've, I've, I've had a great time and uh, feel like I, we've gotten to know each other. And then you would, I don't know. Did you want to me ask me anything else? Cause you had mentioned you wanted to say something. Well, well I mean, you don't have to. No, no pressure. No, I mean, I, I, I don't want to uh, um, break flow or anything, but but I, I was just curious as to, to what this meant to you creatively, um, because I found myself doing other things creatively to, you know, this was, you said kind of what are people doing in the interim and um, you know, I didn't know if this was born out of boredom, born out of journalistic kind of instinct. Well, no, no, I don't. It's funny you, you mentioned the word journalism. I don't consider this to be journalism. Journalism to me is a tool that we use to uh, describe the world, right? We're trying to understand a fact. What happened? When, where, why, how, right? That's journalism to me. Uh, this... Good journalism, I think, tells a wonderful story. Well, yeah, it's no, the story, the story is part of it, but I mean, at its heart of it, it's like, mm-hmm. hey, uh, 50 people died in a bombing in Iraq, right? Just that, and there's a story around that, how it came to be, but ultimately that there's a fierce uh, standard to me of what journalism is, and I would never presume to have that level of standards and what I'm trying to do, because the truth is I will not tell the full truth or something because I care about my guests and the relationships. And that is above, I'm not here to expose a story. I'm not, yeah. I'm, here to, I'm here to connect with people. Um, hopefully find something interesting and informative and touching and human and the people that listen are fly on the wall. That's what, that's what it is. But it's, it was born out of, I was writing for years and I was writing articles for, yeah. It sucks about music and about my journey. And I started writing for VH1 and I was writing for myself. And to me, it was an extension of that. And I was a fan of podcasts because it seemed to me to be um, an intellectual space where mm-hmm. you could, I felt when I listened to podcasts, I was learning things in a way, in a depth, like you listen to a Rogan podcast with some scientist for three hours you have a way of getting enveloped in an idea in a way that just felt that it was it was we were never doing that before and so something about that just seemed compelling I was listening to more podcasts I was listening to music and I would just so I I became infatuated with the medium 
And I started guesting on other people's podcasts and realized that I might have a talent for it. Now, so many people have a podcast. I actually ask myself sometimes, I'm like, do I have a talent for it or can anyone do this? It kind of struck that. <laughs> I, I think it's almost a little bit of column A and column B. I think to a degree, yeah, anyone can do this. But I do think there is a reason the people who are at the top of the field are there. And so I really, when I'm doing it best, it's when I'm working on the craft of it to, you know, being a uh, skilled interviewer to the point where it doesn't feel like interviewing, where it actually just feels where I'm actually guiding the conversation, but it doesn't feel like I'm actually doing it or that I'm covering subject matter in a way that feels naturalistic and not question, 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 right? Question, answer, question, Mm -hmm. answer. So, and then once I started doing it, there was an element of personal therapy. Like I need to have these conversations because I'm, I'm working through some shit, right? Then, and I had enough people like you and me who had been in band, this band, and then had this period in the wilderness with you, literally me figuratively, (laughs) where we were figuring out who we were. And that's the interesting shit. It's not even though it's fun to talk about, oh, this album was sick and that tour was cool. What the show is really about is how, when, if this, I did the thing, this thing for 15 years and that defined everything who I am. And then one day I'm not doing it and I don't know who the fuck I am anymore. And I'm 30 years old. And with my case, I had no money and not many prospects. It became a call to arms to show listeners, hey, you can just because you don't know what you're doing right now, just because you're a little lost, there are answers. And if you listen to us for these shows and you hear, hey, this person was in this band, but then they went on, it's like, oh, Thomas Maxwell was in Nothing Face and that band struggled and then he got hell yeah and they had success. Hey, Rich Ward was in Stuck Mojo and they did some things and they struggled and then now he's in Fozzie and he had success. You know, like just because you didn't, it's not working now doesn't mean it won't work in the future. And in fact, all your the wisdom and knowledge is in your failures or that maybe the things you thought were failures aren't really failures. They're just, you just didn't, it just, it just didn't happen the way you thought it was going to happen. But, you know, so it, I started to realize that the show was actually important to people that I was actually doing kind of a service to some, right on, Um, you know, cause the show is free for people to listen to it. Um, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. But, and that it's important. And so, So then at a certain point, you kind of like, okay, maybe this is a little bit of a calling to a certain degree. And I feel like uh, there's a a grouping of conversations I need to have while I'm still doing it. Uh, And, but I do, I do just enjoy it. I think it's a cool thing. I think it's cool to make things and it's, it helps people get to know me because I do monologues in front of every interview where I'll, I'll talk about some subject, social, political, uh whatever and i just try and be as blunt and concise and thoughtful in a five to ten minute space and it allows people to just understand my perspective whether they agree with me or not they at least hopefully i can communicate it in a way that's as authentic as possible yeah i find one of of the things that's maybe maybe missing uh in current discourse uh as 
the knowledge that that most of us fall somewhere not on the ends, not on the extremes. Um, and so there's there's so much more common ground than we think. I think everybody finds themselves, if, if here's the, the universe we're all living in, then most people aren't here or here. Most people fall in between these points. And there's so much commonality that passes and that membrane, that barrier is so porous of thought and, and that, that, that's not a, a, a state thing. It's not a national thing. It's, that's global. That's humanity. These, these very porous um, ways of viewing, you know, yesterday's uh, laws uh, are, are going to be gone tomorrow. Yeah. And, and tomorrow's, you know, things that we say are fine are going to become outlawed in time. These, yeah. This is our, our view that, that things will dramatic things will happen and people are fearful of, oh, thing. If, if that person gets in, then they're going to take away these 10 things that are going to be crazy. Listen, I think 10 years ago, I would have agreed with you. And I think by the numbers, you're correct. Right. Like most may. Uh, yeah, you're, maybe if it's 51 percent, most people are in the center. But I think what social media has done along with modern media, everything that goes along with that YouTube and all this way, social media and disinformation have incentivized getting the most controversial thing and negative, negative. Like if I do a YouTube video and I and I just say, you know, Hillary Clinton's a Nazi, right? That's going to get more, views and if I say Hillary Clinton's a nice lady, right? Um, or you can put any name in there, Trump, whatever, any person you want to say or celebrity, right? So I think, yes, most people are in the center, but polarization and radicalization has increased exponentially in the last 10, 12 years. So it's something that I think people are further on the extremes than they have been. Doesn't mean they're like marooned out there. I think we can get them back. Uh, but it like, and people tend to look at things like the media is this, the media. I'm like, what the, they don't even know what they're saying. There's no such thing as the media, right? Like there's one narrative and everyone's doing one thing. No, no, no. It can be like, I can be some random guy who has a YouTube show or a podcast or a Twitter account or Instagram. And, and my whole thing is I'm, I need to have like my certain subset of here's the enemies. Here's what I get you pissed off about because the whole point is, and that everyone else. So if I'm just some random person, I could be left or right. But my whole thing is I like, you know what? The mainstream media is fake and corrupt. So that means you only have to listen to me. Right. So, but people will say they're like, the media is fucked up, but I'm like, yeah, but you don't even know what you say when you, you do, when you say it, you're just saying like CNN, you don't like CNN, which is fine. They're pretty garbage, but the whole point is CNN and the guy with the YouTube show, their whole point is they have to find something to either make you scared, pissed off, and then tell you who to be scared of and who to be pissed off at. And then that is in itself a form of currency, right? So if I, so that's what we really 
that's being monetized. Yeah, but but only because the system says, well, I only make money if I get more hits, if I get more ad revenue, if I get more subscribers, if I so it's not them necessarily being evil people. They're just trying to make a living, right? So if I'm some YouTuber, like, well, when I say that SJWs should be shot in the streets, I get way more views or whatever. I don't know, you know, or whatever people say. I don't, I don't really know. I can't really speak for, you know, I could criticize each thing as it is, but I think that is creating more polarization and radicalization. And we've seen it, you know, and I, we can speak that on, on and I, but I agree with you that I, I do think it's the most acute and biggest issue is polarization and the lack of a unified collective reality that we can agree upon, my opinion. Yeah, and, and the social media companies are absolutely responsible in, in some ways. Um, you know, we have to be responsible for ourselves, but... Um, well, we could all be like yeah. you and have the discipline to just stay away, right? How, how many people know, how many have people have taken a marketing 101 class, let alone a doctorate level? Or, or about this, if you if you took a marketing one-on-one class in 1995, is it even relevant now in 2021, right? It's probably marketing now is probably a, a complete, same thing with like music business, right? You had a music business book from 2001, right. we put out records, it's a completely different music business, right? So it's, you constantly have to be updating that knowledge base and kind of uh, because in, in one ways, right, we're someone like me, right, um, where I'm in a band that I want to promote my band and market the music to people, right? So I'm selling a product, but at the same time, I'm also a human being who doesn't want to get sucked in to be being marketed at and being pulled in, right? So we're like, so we're all hypocrites, right? We want to take advantage of the system to sell things to it. But at the same time, we don't want to be pulled in. And we're like, well, this system is evil. And Mark Zuckerberg is evil. And Jacket Twitter is evil. But by the way, can you buy my record? Here, I just, I just, <laughs> I just advertised it. You know, right. like, so yeah. we're all, it's like people who complain about globalism, but then they buy all their shit at fucking Walmart. It's like, dude, that's why you bought a hammer for a dollar fifty. That's right. <laughs> but you're yeah. mad they took the fucking, they closed the factory, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, my, my love, my love for motorcycles. I love things, uh, um, that go vroom and on two wheels. And, uh, uh, I saw you, I where you were riding. What's that? Last time I saw you in Denver, you were riding with, uh, that's right. That's right. I was out with, with Nick. Uh, yeah, man. And, uh, he was kind enough to let me come out and hang and, uh, I got to go ride. Valley of the Gods and stuff. It's beautiful out there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guilty too. So, you know, I fear for you. That is one thing that's very dangerous and I fear for your safety. <laughs> well, that's probably a, a healthy fear. Um, I study up. I've had friends die on, on motorcycles. So. Sure. Sure. Most of us have. Um, so I'm, I'm well aware and uh, I'm, there are two types of riders uh, before I get back to my point. Those that have been down, those those who have not, I am of the former, and so I have a very healthy respect uh, for what can happen uh, on one of those. But I also was smart enough to be wearing gear head toe, and I, I don't go out of the house without it. So, uh, but point. You're riding Ironman too, right? I'm a part. I'm part of the problem because I just I go burn gas for fun. Yeah. 
you know, oh, big oil, you know, oil's bad, you know, kill the Keystone because, yes, uh, we were taking advantage of the people we committed an act of genocide against called the Indians. And, and now the Keystone Pipeline is getting shut down. But, yay, Keystone Pipeline shut down, but I'm an oil burner. Yeah. So, you know, there's plenty of hypocrite stuff to go around. We all are. We're all guilty of it. Uh, you know, the good place makes a good point. Uh, you know, nobody's getting in. Yeah. Nobody, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it was that, it was that almond milk. I know it was, <laughs> uh, right. The, you know, that I didn't get in, uh, to the good, way, place. good place. I only watched the first few episodes and I got, oh. I know how good it is, but part of it is my girlfriend went ahead and then, but I'm going to get back. All right. I'll get back to the good place guys. All right. I'll, I'll catch up. I know it's a good show. It, it gets really good. And then it gets monumentally good. Uh, at the end. dancing living legend okay yeah it, it really is a it really becomes a pretty profoundly uh a captivating show uh, right and uh, now you just okay I, I i finished community okay nice. now i gotta go back and do good place yeah now i'm doing some like uh, i'm back to sg1 damn <laughs> i know sg1 baby sg1 <laughs> um hey, i'm sorry no, uh, you know, just uh, I, I think I was uh, at the at the point of showing how hypocritical I am, and that you know, people in glass houses, uh, people in glass houses shouldn't really throw some stones. And um, but I'm gonna change over to electric bikes uh, next generation, and I'm gonna try to keep moving toward making better choices um, with the food that I buy, you know, instead of just buying stuff that I know is really coming from bad places, you know, because it's, that's what's at the store and it's what's less expensive, you know, and, uh, you know, and therein, there's my privilege that I get to even say things like that or even yeah. think in that way that, you know, I'm going to buy something different, even though it's more expensive because I believe that where it came from, is a, a more sound business. Yeah, we're lucky. Environmentally, you know, so I, I get to make kind of decisions on that, and that is absolutely a privilege to be able to do that. So, and since I have it, I should, um, you know, um, we've been trying to support some of the local businesses right now through the pandemic by just ordering takeout and stuff. Um, I, I prefer my own food most of the time. Uh, sometimes I don't want to do do the kitchen cleanup, um, but but we want to support those local, local businesses, you know? And uh, so we try to get some takeout like we did tonight, actually. It's good. See, I got, I got to eat after this. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You're on totally different schedule, right? Shit. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right though. This, listen, this is, this has been worth it more than I could, even could have, could have bargained. Cause I, I don't want to keep it that long, but then, we, you know, sometimes the, the conversation just flows and it goes to places and it, it that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. Man. I figured it'd be like this, you know, and I, I mean, really, I wasn't thinking we'd spend much uh, as much time on the mud main stuff as we did, but um, I'm not shy. And uh, uh, obviously I'm, I'm happy to discuss that, that stuff because why else would I be here? Right. I think that's what, that was my reply to you is like, uh, Oh, I'm not going to, let's not talk about mud main stuff. Uh, but your reply must be then what the hell are we going to talk about then? Right. Listen, uh, I think, I think me and you honestly could have, talked about whatever i think that's yeah. the, the the way you and i think and the way we kind of we're both curious we're both 
into details and we could, you know, and we're both very introspective. So I think we would have found fertile ground no matter what. I'm glad we got to talk about that stuff because I think it's a legacy that you should be proud of. And, uh, and like I said, people love you. I think they're going to love this conversation. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, what, what the next step is for you in, in your life and everyone else is, is very excited as well, man. I think it's an exciting time. And once this pandemic pandemic restrictions and is over and we can all have concerts and stuff, man, it would be, uh, you know, I, I hope to see out there again, man, it would be fucking amazing. Yeah. So what are you doing right now? Are you, obviously nobody's, nobody's big touring. So are you writing right now then, or what's the, what, well, we're, we're technically on a tour this summer with disturbed and stained, but gotcha. who knows? Uh, it's kind of keep the fingers crossed, but uh, that pending, yeah, we're knee deep in finishing a record. So we, we started writing pretty much at the beginning of the pandemic for the most part, but singer change and that puts some things in flux. Certain songs were there, not there. So we're kind of going back to the, the drawing board of certain things, but the bulk of a record exists. Um, and we also at the beginning of the pandemic started a Patreon page. So the band develops a lot of content for that connecting with the fans and doing live streams and doing videos and all kinds of stuff. So that's been really fun and definitely something that keeps us busy. And, you know, just the whole social media aspect of things is something in the last few weeks that I've been taking a lot more seriously with the band and trying to connect with, the fans just like i don't know like like people man if you just get out there and you're just like i'm just playing bad wolf songs and rocking out they don't have any concerts so it's like they'll you'll just like those like thank you man thank you for do- just giving them 10 minutes of just rocking out to a tune they like and you know it's not a concert but it's something is better than nothing um so yeah. so just kind of understanding that between now and when things are quote unquote normal, your job as uh, someone who's in a band that people care about goes beyond just in today's day and age, just being someone who makes records and does shows. And the more you embrace that, I think the more successful you be. And if, listen, if you, if I was in, you know, Guns N' Roses or something, I probably wouldn't have to do those things but i think people are saying you know what it's actually not about what you have to do it's kind of if you want to do it and you don't see it as much of it as as a chore just as just being that you know it is a little bit through the looking glass a little bit truman show where we're all kind of out there and people can kind of tune into us and see what we're doing um and it's not perceived i think as as voyeuristically as it may have would have been 20 years ago it's just seen as this is the world we're in where the world's a little bit smaller. The everyone is a little bit more approachable and that's okay. Mm. You know, yeah. if, if you're okay with that, obviously I think there's some people who say, you know, what? I'm, it's not my thing. And I think that's great too. And sometimes I want to say it's not my thing and, and not look at the phone for a month. And maybe sometimes I'll, and at some point I'll probably have to do that just to kind of, save my brain cells or 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 whatever just you know you can get burnt out on it really quickly it's refreshing if you put your phone down you know for even a couple days let alone a couple weeks um just prior to the pandemic i was able to to take a vacation yeah and and i didn't 
do much. I've looked at it a couple times over a month period. Yeah. And that was the first time I had been removed from a, a smart device, <clears throat> which is a bit of a misnomer. Uh, but um, a smart device, uh, that was the first time I had been removed, unleashed, untethered uh, for that long in my, probably in my adult life, you know, when, when have you gone a month? With, I, well, I, I honestly feel like, especially now because battles is in the middle of finishing a record doing, you know, looking for a singer, like the, just the amount of work. It's like, I can't afford to, to, to disconnect now. Like I need to, it's like, you know, you know, that moment in Avengers Endgame or in the infinity war when, Dano sits down. He's like, ah, oh, job well done. I ain't there yet. I need, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a lot of Avengers to kill before <laughs> I, I can sit down. <laughs> <on the farm. laughs> I hear it, man. I mean, I these stones to collect. Okay. Yeah. If you got stuff to do, I hear it, man. Um, but I, I, I would challenge, you know, maybe this is the, maybe this is the new internet channel, you know, put your phone down from, uh, Zach yeah. Myers did that from uh, Shinedown. He did it not that long ago, and he's he's in a big band, so it's it's refreshing what you find. He got a lot of platinum records on the wall. All right, that that uh that that mortgage bill paid like a motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> um, um, what you find is that you'll come back to the exact same news that you left. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Ryan, I appreciate you. Thanks so much for taking your time. This was amazing. Again. Appreciate it, man. You take care of yourself, all right? You too. Take care, buddy. Big hugs. Hugs. Bye-bye.
that track was entitled Mission Possible, and it's by Soften the Glare, Ryan's instrumental badass band. And yeah, that was, I just thought that was a very catchy, very cool tune. If you hadn't heard it, it was my duty to show it to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Three hours, baby. That's how we do it over here. We try not to do it every week, but (laughs) special episode. I even cut a little bit out just because I didn't want to bore you guys too much, but I thought the conversation actually got more interesting as it went on and just went down all these paths and and that's always where the fun stuff is, but 150 episodes, it's been a blast. Uh, It's very late and I'm exhausted, so I'm going to check out, but I love you guys. Thank you so much for the support means the world to me and uh, every day, something new, something great. Mama's out. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.